0: three people the left and when I get nervous I walk and usually I speak too quickly so if you don't understand anything just keep it to yourself and pretend you did I'd be very very careful when you talk to you about that because the person who wrote that is dangerous perfecto
1: that's about right I think maybe it'll be a little bit quiet but we can always adjust it a little bit Anyway, it's kind of a we're still getting used to like the video slash audio setup, so it's still a little bit all over the place, but we'll figure it out as we go.
0: It's nice to see the increased level of production that you guys have brought to it (laughs) since I started training with you here.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, before when we first started, it was like a sheet metal table. That and they're just like these shitty microphones. And both me and Mark were like, "We can't do it like this." And then we like, we got nice equipment, but we still had like, we didn't care about what it looked like because we weren't videoing. People just kept asking, like, oh "Man, you guys should do video." I was like, "Why do you want to see me?" <laughs> like, I, don't, I, I, okay, um, I because I'm not a fan. Like, I don't watch the video version of podcasts generally.
0: <clears throat> yeah, but more and more people are <clears throat> seeing those video components. Um, if it's Joe Rogan or Mm. Aubrey Marcus, like we've discussed, like they're able to be aired via Spotify. And I think more people are making the move to Spotify for podcasts because they're utilizing it so heavily for their music consumption.
1: Do do you think like, yeah, on the Spotify
0: sense, do you think, um, do you think they are growing exponentially or? I do. I think that in general, and again, coming from like the live entertainment side, we're seeing a push from just entertainment, if you will, into education. So I think the same thing is occurring as it relates to content consumption online, where you have people that might be listening to a specific type of music. um, And that artist that they're listening to ends up interacting in some way culturally with a subject matter expert an educator. And then that's like an entryway into the podcasts. So I think more and more we're seeing that grow. And Spotify mm. has a ton of solutions for that specifically. Not that like Apple hasn't been around forever and that there's sure. all these other platforms, but I think that the video component is critical. But I do think that mm. the way that you guys have grown into it is a natural progression. I don't think anybody starting a podcast is should be doing that. Like volume, yeah. as I'm getting that going, I have no interest in putting video into it yet.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I should admit, I do not have... Uh, a spotify
0: account we talked about it. you still use soundcloud which is awesome soundcloud's well,
1: great i use soundcloud sometimes uh, that's also garbage like right it, it doesn't man for a streaming service they really got, they're they're just it's it hardly ever works <laughs>
0: chance like, the rapper saved
1: them too i think that's oh really like is
0: that how it happened yeah they were about to go out of business and chance well, right, came well, in and, well, fuck
1: how about this um <laughs> we could just start uh adam saint simon That's me. (laughs) Welcome (laughs) to the nonprofit podcast.
0: I'm honored to be here today. Uh, Mark
1: took off early. Otherwise, he wanted to be here. He was going to try to make it, but he had to go up to Montana today. So it's just me and you.
0: Hey, man, I'm happy to be here. And I'm sure Mark and I will have the opportunity to wrap at some point. We'll get you back on here
1: at some point. Yeah. Um, You are in a crazy fucking industry. That I am. One that, man, I um, am not a part of, but I think that everybody is a fan of.
0: Everybody, right? I think that music is the coolest thing that we do culturally. I think that concerts and events um, really stand out as like the ultimate or pinnacle gathering point for so many people. Outside of sporting events, I think music really leads the way in that regard.
1: Yeah, well, and sporting events are, what, what is it about music that is, okay, let's go music first. Let's just like, why is music so important? Or why do people, here's a better one. (laughs) Why culturally do people pretend like music is only entertainment?
0: I don't think that's accurate at all. I think that more, where music comes from was not originally uh, a source of entertainment. It was a source of community and connection, right? Like people sat around the fire, they drummed, they Mm -hmm. sang songs. It was a core component of culture and community Yeah, I think that entertainment has always been something I don't say always I think that entertainment has it became something that we were able to do as we stopped worrying about survival right all of a sudden we were in the experiential economy right And and that you know progressed as you know Generations continue to evolve in terms of like what we were doing. But I think now, like, yes, there is entertainment. We want to be entertained. We want to be able to escape. Escapism mm-hmm. is a big part of it. I really try to shy away from that in my own uh, professional stance of what I do. But I think more and more people are going back to the fact that music is medicine more and more yeah. like it's sacred it's medicine it's a beautiful form of self-expression it's mm-hmm. art and also it can be entertainment i think it's important to discern between the two and to not yeah. judge one or the other because it's you know it's all good stuff
1: i think um i think at the how i view it and that's probably maybe it's not um the normal i think the last thing that it is 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 entertainment um in fact if you're using it to distract yourself like i the perfect uh, if music is distracting you it's probably like elevator music or, or some, Muzak or whatever it ends up being, where you're just trying to fill the silence that you have a hard time dealing with. Um, but this is interesting. I, you mentioned like kind of the, the history of it. I, I, th- I don't think we really know where it came from, right? Like there's lots of good guesses, but I think uh, I'm reading a book right now. is like, uh, you know, purely human evolution. And it's kind of, it, it's, it's guessing a lot of stuff. Um, but it's coming out like it sounds like fact. And this is how like most science is working these days, which it's like, it's a good guess. Uh, you know, they're going through, you know, different hominids and then they finally get to why we would stand up. Right. And like, why would we to free up use of our hands? That's a good guess. And then, uh, also efficiency to like go longer. Like we can now find food in, uh, farther distances because walking is like, you know, 50% more efficient than being on all fours. But that also for, you see other, you know, kind of apes and hominids do this kind of thing where they free up their upper body to play a tree like a bongo. Like, I think you see <laughs> apes do it all the time. And you're like, there's uh our mutual friend, uh, Marwena. She's um, studying this group that's a Aboriginal group that does not talk. So they they believe that their voice is made for music Mm. right like music first so they protect that uh sacredly um by not talking and only using their voice to sing to heal people and use it uh for like real communication of emotion and so the theory goes this kind of blew my mind is like before there was speech there was there was music Like it should predate speech, technically.
0: I mean, it had to have. Yeah. We had to be making sounds before we collectively agreed that certain sounds represent certain things. Right. And, uh, you know, to speak to what you're just saying regarding Mm Mirwena and what she's studying, I found it really interesting when I learned that a lot of Buddhist thought believes that anything that you say, Mm -hmm. any word or sound that we, you know, essentially put out into the world echoes on for eternity. So, going back to the sacred nature Mm -hmm. of language, of the voice, um, you know, I mean, again, we're, we're talking about like really spiritual perspectives of all of this, mm-hmm. essentially. And I think that that's I think that there's truth in that. And I think also like going back to the entertainment versus, um, I don't know, just like the, the the root heart of what music can be artistically, mm-hmm. soulfully like that expression that, um, you know, there there are ways to dishonor essentially ourselves, mm-hmm. culture at large, you know, through putting out. You know low vibrational stuff it really is vibration right in that regard for
1: sure yeah this gets like i mean this whole this turns on all the skeptics and i used to be one of them like oh it's vibrational patterns and it's about if you've ever listened to hicks comedy about you know it has that bit in the tool song like we are all just vibrations and i it you know like it's a drug induced thought but it's actually like a universally induced thought that once you feel music or you have some form of synesthesia. Um, this, this revelation where you're like, Oh my God, like, what is it doing to me? Like the sound is affecting me a certain way. And this is, um, in my very recent learning music myself, um, is interesting too. Uh, like I don't consider myself a musician, uh, consciously, right. Cause that, that puts me in a category, but realistically, I, I think if you use sound in any kind of way or format, you, you're a musician. You know, like I'm not going to go perform for anybody in front of a live audience. Well, I'll, I'll play for my friends and shit because they don't, they'll tell me how bad I am and it'll be funny. But the, the, the weird part is that when you, when you actually own it, when you a- own the fact that I can create music, it becomes like a very different appreciation of music. And, and I, think it, I think you're right that it makes it, it kind of binds it to this spiritual aspect of living. Which is a kind of funny little like weird quip about uh, to back to that like uh, music before like speech kind of deal. Uh, I didn't know this, but the the language and the the Amazon Quechua or Quechua Quechuan right Quechuan yeah mm-hmm. yeah um, that was first. So if you if you hear their words now, they have kind of translations for what it's a loose translation, but like Shamu is like a protective word, and then you know they all kind of rhyme. Originally, those weren't there. Were no word. There was no translation. It was just an intent behind you making the sound, and that was how communication handled it, right? And when you think about that, like on the scale of how you use language to communicate, um, I think about it all the time because sometimes I'm trying to say a word, but people are taking my tone, right? So the best way to put this is like if you ever talk to a child and the child needs a lesson, but you're frustrated that they're not getting it, and you're trying to explain in a frustrated tone, they will not hear what you say, they'll feel what you mean, which is frustrated.
0: Oh, 100%. And we talk about this all the time as it relates to public speaking. It's not about what you say, it's how you say it. Yeah. And I think that, again, this goes back to the vibrational elements of what we're putting out there. You know, speaking to like the Icarus, which is where you're going with that mm. in terms of the Quechuan, I always found it really interesting because I still have never sat with an indigenous shaman. Mm-hmm. I've always sat with what I would call, you know, neo-spiritual Groups or circles. We're going
1: to get into America's Next Top Shaman. 100% getting into America's (laughs) Next
0: Top Shaman. I would not say that the groups that you and I have sat with are in that category. There's a lot of humility within that. But it's interesting. I always have wondered does listening to the Icaros, being in the space of that vibration, have the same effect if you don't understand the intention behind the words or the sounds that are being shared. Like, does it make more sense for somebody from a Western background to hear music that they understand the intention behind based upon the language, or is there just magic? Somewhat, you know, in the original intention from the original language.
1: Th- this is this is a fascinating subject, and I've been going kind of headfirst into it because, first of all, uh, so you know, Sam, mm-hmm. Sam, um, Sam doesn't know. Any of the lyrics that he's singing in either Portuguese or Spanish, or he might know like a word or two, but he is a 100% feeling type of musician, right? He also doesn't know the chords or... Um, like the structure of what he's doing now. If you, if you, the
0: actual theory.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's no musical theory behind there, and, and, and to this day, I can go A minor, and he's like, "What's that?" And I, and I'll like show him, and he'll be like, "I don't know what that is." And I'll play it, and he goes, "Oh, this," and he'll mimic it almost immediately, right? So the talent, like that, sounds like it's bad. It's actually like an amazing skill that you can't, I can't mimic that, even if I tried my hardest, but. He also doesn't know the words uh, that he's singing necessarily, but he can always get the inflection because he can hear it, right? So he can inflect the word cure or help or hope or whatever the root is pretty well. Um, But this argument goes deeper because let's say um, uh, there was this uh, really famous uh, pianist that he wrote he's a really good writer and i have one of his books i can't remember his name because i'm not into that stuff Mm -hmm. necessarily but he had a couple essays where he talked about the same idea and he goes yeah yeah it doesn't make a difference until it does right like (laughs) if there was an atheist singing about or celebrating their god like in terms of you like it just wouldn't be it's not the same thing because you you can see the insincerity or you can feel the insincerity Uh, of where a belief is not believed and so a song needs to actually carry the intent pretty well um that i'm i'm conflicted on it because i think it could go both ways um but since we're in the weeds with it i just think it's it's how okay so how many artists would you be able to work with that didn't buy into their own music
0: Unfortunately I've worked with tons. Um and I think sure. that's a I think it's a byproduct of working in the industry full time. You know, like there's this element, you know, not to get into too many of like these mm. details yet, where we're going with this, but if you choose a career in the music industry, specifically in the music business, you even on the actual performance side, you are presented with so much financial frustration as mm. you work to you know, really establish yourself yeah. that you end up taking gigs that might not be entirely in alignment with what it is that you truly desired to do or what you thought you were getting into it for and through that process i've learned that you start to discern better and you start to realize this isn't for me because it's inauthentic Mm. but a lot of the industry is inauthentic and so that then you know goes back to the entertainment versus art argument right at this point in my career it's really hard for me to work with artists that are just full of shit you know and there's a lot of it there really is um and that can go into the topic of like cultural appropriation and i understand why artists will do this it's not from this place of let me, you know, commercialize this. It's not like this greedy, money-hungry sort of perspective of, oh, that's hot, let me do it. Yeah. I do believe that it comes from a place of I was inspired by that. Yeah. But just because you were inspired by it, right, doesn't mean that that should now become some form of your identity and how you sell yourself as a artist. So the, I would say that that's like the main thing. But for the most part, I'm only working with artists who I truly believe in at this point.
1: The, I mean, I, yeah, that, that seems... Um... This seems intuitive, especially somebody who has like a passion for their job. And they're, again, without like better terms, you're trying to raise the awareness of sincere performance and sincere art. And that, that man, it would be, uh, how would I, well, it happens all the time. You meet, you know, a coach or somebody who's in a profession that we're in and they don't give a shit about what they're doing. And you're like, the, uh, man, I can't even tolerate being around those kind of people right like i can't operate out of insincerity therefore the environment the vibration of somebody operating at insincerity will affect me negatively um and maybe that's that's kind of what it is you you <laughs> the cultural appropriation um especially for music i find fascinating the su- the i subject. love
0: talking about this oh this will be good
1: <laughs> good perfect because i've got some questions okay. now there's some obvious there's some obvious things right up front that you 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 um you promote are you able to talk specifically about Yeah we can get that? specific
0: okay. I won't spe- speak the specific artists but no no for yeah, sure yeah, I don't call. I'm just saying like, the brands that
1: you're behind like mm-hmm. Reggae Rise Up is kind of the example. Right. So you you promote um, something that has a very direct lineage, right? Um, and people you could even talk about the costuming that goes behind it, which I, essentially to some people is a religion and other people is just like a convenient hairstyle. Um, obviously there's some beliefs about wearing your hair long and how that kind of gives you, it's a, actually a pretty cool little theory about Samson and growing your hair long. And that's where your power <laughs> comes from. I'm not really talking about that. I, in general, let's talk generally, but cause I, I do this with um, like, obviously we're both into kind of medicine, music, a lot of it being South American and Spanish uh, inspired. And so a lot of the songs that I know are Portuguese or Spanish uh, or Quechuan. Like mm-hmm. the, All of that stuff is kind of mingled. And when I look at it, I go, man, um, am I appropriating Spanish culture, right? Or or like, am I, you know, am I not, I don't think that I'm disrespecting, it's actually a profound appreciation for it.
0: Well, you're, you're nailing it right there. It's the difference between appreciation and appropriation. And it's tough to be a white guy that works in the reggae industry to mm-hmm. t- talking about appropriation. Um, but what I'll say is like the best example that I can give is this, and I won't speak to the band specifically, but there's a band who I have a huge amount of appreciation for in the Mm -hmm. reggae scene. Uh, I think that they're a domestic US band. Uh, They were obviously heavily heavily inspired by the message and music of Bob Marley and Mm -hmm. the entire, you know, know, Jamaican roots scene. Um, And as such, you know, they integrated a lot of that, if you will, into their music. And one of the things that always stood out to me was their use of ieric and if you're not familiar mm-hmm. with what ieric is ieric is a dialect that was essentially formed in response to the colonial imposition of wow. uh, European languages on black slaves. So when slavery was you know, well and alive in the world, mm-hmm. uh, as the African slaves were taken to the Caribbean islands and other parts of the Americas, they weren't allowed to speak their native African tongues. Mm-hmm. They were forced to learn the language of the Europeans. Mm-hmm. As such, they lost a lot of their original ties to the African languages. So as a response, Ieric, in many ways, is this idea of freeing yourself from, you know, quote-unquote, mental slavery, Mm -hmm. and they created a dialect that utilizes the European languages, right, but in their own way. It's super creative. And that's an inherently black thing, right? There's no getting around that, right? Like, where it comes from, why it was created, is something that deserves acknowledgement and respect. And so, when you have, you know, suburban... White male reggae bands that are inspired by this because it's cool, right? Like it sounds amazing. Like we're attracted to these unique cultural elements of this music. Clearly, that's why it's become as popular as it has. And they utilize it and commodify it commercially. To me, that's where appropriation exists. Now, again, can you do that in a respectful manner? Can it be appreciation for sure? But if I'm sitting down with One of the lead singers of a band that I respect, and I ask you, "Hey, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. How do you address it? How do you feel about it?" And the response is, "What's I, Eric? That's a problem, (laughs) right?" (laughs) And and and, like I went through that, and so it was an eye opener. And I had an opportunity in that moment to call in, you know, this musician and be like, "This is something you should probably look into." Well,
1: but this is okay. So this actually falls in line with like where. So if I learn a song i i have to learn what every word means just for my brain to learn it because i need i need to know how to like give the proper you know inflection and the proper uh tribute to that word while you're singing it because you know it means a certain thing and you want to enunciate it appropriately um but I, I would say the, the same thing is true. Why I tell Sam I was like, man, you should know what that means. <laughs> that, that kind of deal. Because A, I think it's an appreciation for where it comes from. I'll go back like one step further. Because mm-hmm. this is the cultural appropriation as a, gen, not just in music, but as a general accusation, I have a, a really hard time with. And especially just... BJJ. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. It's like, yeah, perfect example, right? It's Brazilian jitsu, And you're like, Cool is jitsu a brazilian word <laughs> you're like no but they took it the gracies took it from you know whatever you can go back and do the whole family lineage and how they you know, the, the the accusation is that the Japanese weren't actually using it for what they use it and the Gracies perfected it. And there's some truth to that, right? They obviously made it popular, but really the Gracies, what, what they were genius about was not necessarily making it popular. Well, sorry, not making it refined, but bringing it to Southern California and attaching it to surf culture, mm-hmm. right? So it has this like very, yo bro, it's like, it has a very relaxed kind of reggae vibe to it, actually.
0: Well, but beyond that, and let's jump on that for a second, mm-hmm. is that the similarity here doesn't... it? The appropriation in itself is not identified just by taking something from another culture and then utilizing it yourself as somebody not from that culture. Mm-hmm. I think that a big contextual component is, does the predominant culture, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, let's say white America, benefit from that in a way that diminishes or removes the potential benefit from the culture in which it came, right? And that is true Mm. for reggae right now. And I'll speak to this real quick, and we can go back to the VJJ example, Mm -hmm. and maybe there's a parallel, but ticket sales across the industry in the United Mm -hmm. States are exponentially higher for white American reggae bands, such as Slightly Stupid, Revolution, Soja, all of these artists. And again, like their music's great. I'm not... I'm not hating on that whatsoever, yeah. but to look at that in comparison to the Jamaican artists right now that are producing incredible music, uh, chronics, Protégé, Kabaka Pyramid, mm. Coffee, they're not selling the same number of tickets, not even close within these same markets in the US. Mm. And so to me, that's really where you know the implications of cultural appropriation become more predominant, and it's something that is definitely being uh, registered within the scene. Yeah. You know, as it relates to being a talent buyer or a festival producer, like these considerations are real and yeah. they're they're being addressed. I'm not sure if that relates with BJJ, whether the Gracies really capitalized on that in a way that was at the expense of... Uh, i don't know um you know I don't, it's not coaches i guess like uh sensei's senses uh, uh,
1: professors professors yeah, yeah yeah
0: you know from you know japan in that case right yeah
1: this is uh, i mean this is <laughs> is it it gets it gets kind of wild because there's there are parallels there um i would say that the gracies trying to own the domain is the biggest problem right because there's lots of arguments about what is traditional. And then again, this comes back to like the root the root of culture. Culture is evolving all the time. And that's what I think it's not, culture is not a thing. It's an organism, right? It's, it's basically the reflection of what we are as a reflection of how we're developing and, and morphing our society. So it's constantly evolving. You can look at it like, go back 20 years ago, right? you were alive i was alive i was a kid there was far more tolerable racism everywhere like i and it's like it's palpable right when you think back to like some of the conversations i've been in and you're like man we would have been canceled for that for sure but it and whether it was a joke or not is irrelevant it was just the culture was more uh abundantly racist than than um than it is now and if you went back before that you took a generation before us it would be a multiple of that and you went a generation before that and you're talking about you know all white baseball and you go a generation before that you're talking about slavery so it's like man uh, when i look at like our kids generation now how intolerant of bigotry they are compared to our generation i'm like right on it's morphing it's changing that's how it should be um, you, you should improve the quality with which uh, people interact with each other. Now, a lot of those problems will be like, you know, there's a globalist argument. There's a, there's this um, uh, homogenization of culture, which is also a problem. But if you go back far enough, like, you know, let's say we're looking at, um, I don't know, Mexican food, right? Because this is the big, I know there's just a Biden slip up where they referred to... Mexican people as tacos or something. I I don't know. I don't know what the actual thing was, but Biden said this. uh, His wife, I think, I think was the first lady that that uh, compared um, the beautiful diversification of Mexican culture as a taco or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's like this is harmless, but also hilarious to somebody who's trying so hard to cover their inherent biases. One hundred percent. Right. Like they
0: were born as that. it was a conditioned perspective.
1: But let's look at a taco. Like, where does it come from? You're like, when, when you back up enough. And this is where I get to, like, with most people saying, like, oh, it's like, you got to sing Spanish for the, you know, because, uh, you know, ayahuasca and all of these ceremonial processes, they, they sing in either Portuguese or, or, or Spanish. And you're like, yeah, but that they just appropriated that language from the colonialists, right? And the same thing is true of Mexican food. Like, you guys didn't even have tomatoes, right? There was no such thing as beef. There wasn't, like... There was no cheese there until colonialists came in and spread their thing. And then if you go back farther, they didn't have that thing until you know Romans conquered something else. And before that is the Greeks. and before that it was the Anatolia. so you you go back far enough in culture and like Italian food isn't Italian food. It's a mixture of Roman and and Germanic and like all of these things have been boiling in a big mixing pot of of ideas for you know millennia. and, what we know about, we've lost a lot and discovered a lot. And this is this is where my problem with cultural appropriation is like, well, we all came from the cradle of mankind, mm-hmm. right? Like we all inherently are evolving from this center of the world and spreading out. And there's new ideas. It's it's kind of how we we look at our ideas now. Maybe we come up with a good idea for fitness or whatever the thing is. And we talk about that idea. And then somebody takes that and they copy that idea. They use it. And I go, eh, that was a little bit... Yeah, it cuts home, right? Like it cuts a little bit when somebody doesn't attribute where they got the idea. But if they take that idea and they make it better and then it continues to grow and it's re- that's what it's supposed to happen.
0: What well, comes down to the execution? Gary Vaynerchuk used to be a really big influence to me in terms of like the way that he... I like the hustle porn. You know, mm-hmm. like back in the day, it's not so much where I'm at anymore because it's exhausting. It's your manifesting um, generator self. <laughs> yeah, please bring it. <laughs> I like to punish myself in this regard. But uh there is a line that he used to say that really resonated with me is like ideas are bullshit, execution is everything. Yeah. And that's a bit harsh, you know, but there's truth in that. Is it's that th- we have endless we have an endless capacity to be creative and to come up with ideas, right? But the ideas in and of themselves aren't doing anything. It's the execution on those ideas and some people are simply better at executing than others. I would
1: I would interrupt just one thing. Mm-hmm. I would say we have an endless resource to criticize other people's ideas (laughs) and we have a limited resource to create our own ideas and that's why it's so that's why it's so backwards right there's like everybody is a critic almost nobody is a creator
0: and going back to gary v one of his more recent things is you don't need to be a creator you just need to be documenting you know in terms of like the (laughs) whole online culture and i mean there's there's some truth to that I, i i love the idea of documentation i love photography, I Mm -hmm. love videography, I love looking back at, um, you know, the the various generations of music specifically, Mm -hmm. I'm super fascinated by the history of music and live entertainment. And without those documenters, we wouldn't have that education in front of us, essentially. So I'm Mm. I'm, I'm appreciative of that. But I also believe wholeheartedly that what we're here to do is to be as close to the emergent at any given time as possible. And to be Part of that emerging culture, right? And this goes back to the cultural con- concept here, um, is to not ident- overly identify with any one thing, right? Yeah. And that's a really unique thing, especially for, if we're bringing it back full circle into like arts and entertainment mm-hmm. and we're commodifying this, we're making a living doing this, we're being able to, like, you know, make it work financially to continue to fuel the machine that brings this to more and more people, you almost have to you know, put yourself in a category at some point or another, even if it's an album cycle or mm-hmm. a tour or whatever it is, for people to understand exactly what it is that they're choosing to buy into in that experience. Um, it's really hard to be so just blatantly, openly creative. Yeah. And even those that think that they are, like the Kanye West of the world, yeah. they're not they still fit into a category of some sort as it relates to what Spotify classes them as or what culture looks at them as. Yeah. But to be truly creative, be truly on the emergent. Oscar Wilde, you said something earlier about you don't classify yourself as a musician. There's a famous Oscar Wilde quote saying something along the lines of that anybody that claims themselves to be something will forever be punished to be that thing. Yeah, And I think that that's fascinating because life is yeah. dynamic.
1: Well, that's, um, that's a part of audience capture, right? What mm-hmm. we're calling like caricature permanence, which is like a real threat about what kind of social media and the ample like it's the the political uh you're like making political figures out of celebrities right and and i mean that by like if i want political power i appeal to a constituency right i'm like i'm saying ideas that are popular within a certain group and i'm taking their ideas that i know are popular with them and amplifying them so i became a feature or a leader of a certain subgroup that will will trust me to carry their viewpoints across to laws and other things that's political power and that's, that's been true um of demo- democratic states for kind of all time and now we have kind of like now because there's so many platforms for people um yeah. they subconsciously are kind of appealing to the audience that captures them that goes oh you did that funny thing do that again and then they become known for this thing. No, And you see this all the time. It's like, you follow a musician or somebody, right? And they make a political statement. So he's like, stay in your lane, bro. Like, we just wanna hear the music, shut the fuck up. And you go, all of these, like everybody is a person and they all have an inherent right to actually comment on the world that they live in. That's a, if you don't believe in that fact, you should not be living in society, right? Like everybody has an experience. Now they're not all equally important opinions but if they're not then you just ignore it it's not it's not somebody's job to shut up so you feel comfortable that should never be the thing
0: absolutely not and i think that <clears throat> this goes back to the overidentification of things you know people mm-hmm. want to feel comfortable in some way or another and i think that that's where that response that you're speaking mm-hmm. to comes from um i haven't watched the whole thing yet but i i did get to meet aaron Rodgers at arcadia mm. because aubrey invited him out and he just was on aubrey's podcast i don't know if you check this out or not but he really speaks to that as it relates to being kind of one of the first major professional athletes that came yep. out and said hey i ayahuasca changed my entire perception oh, yeah. of humanity and life but he speaks to this fact that uh he essentially felt as though there was this expectation to be a certain thing culturally yeah right and He was more dynamic than that. And that's everybody. You know, everybody can relate to that in some way or another. And the bigger you get as it relates to being a public persona, Mm -hmm. the more feedback you have, especially with these crazy quick feedback loops that we've created in culture, where all of a sudden you're now questioning because some sort of contingent out there is just shitting on you as it relates to you just being an authentic individual. So,
1: And this is the hard part about being an authentic individual is being aware of where the traps are And then also, and this is kind of where it leads back, maybe it kind of circles around to the first idea of appropriation, because you see like hyper creatives like Kanye or somebody, somebody that just can produce material on demand, which is very impressive. Um, and they they slightly shift i'm not like the biggest kanye fan but i do appreciate that he's talented like
0: he he is a genius in many ways creatively yeah
1: and i would say like I, I, there's other rappers that i think are you know up there uh that that i think people would say no like he's the best but i i, I just appreciate the style but i do appreciate the skill and i would even say like one profound thing watching like taylor swift documentary how absolutely impressive it is of how talented she is but in the same sense just talented in a one narrow margin towards an audience that expects certain things from her right they want this and anything outside of the box is kind of like frowned upon and i think artists run into it's typecasting for an actor it's um the genre you're not allowed to break out of the genre who's the uh sigil um is it sigil uh sturgeon yeah 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 yeah. man does he break turtles all the way down <laughs> yeah dude does he break all of the rules and not honestly in my favorite way like a lot of his music doesn't resonate but when he does get something that resonates I, man i can't listen to the whole thing but i'll find one piece that i like and i'm like man i'm so glad he's jumping around but is there a danger you know in trying to be so creative you keep appropriating and that that's what i think like sampling and rap became such a problem just because you think that it's hyper creativity but really it's just absorb. they're taking in so much content that their output just is a reflection of that it's almost a different kind of audience capture and Does i mean sense? in
0: an even greater perspective how are we determining what success really is the industry yeah. will determine success from Sales, a yeah. financial perspective yeah but that's obviously not the only way to determine it. And I think as it relates to art, Mm -hmm. if it really is art and not just entertainment, is are you impacting people in a way that makes them feel something? And there's not a quantitative measurement of that outcome, right? Yeah. And I think that it's challenging. And you look at some incredible musicians out there or artists out there that really were in that creative flow and constantly changing genres or styles and as a result of that, they didn't get a big enough of a fan base necessarily mm-hmm. to like power through and become a pop culture yeah. sensation that maybe they deserved because they were at that creative level. Um, the industry is really formatted in a way for public consumption. Um, oh, yeah. And the good news, I think, with that is, is that as it relates to the DSPs like Spotify, Mm -hmm. even though Spotify is horrible at paying artists, right? What's amazing about it is is that never before Spotify was there the ability for any artist to record and to distribute the music to the entire world at literally close to no cost to them in comparison to the old model of the record industry. And that's amazing. And people forget about that. I remember in 2010, I saw the statistic that said 32 percent of the world was connected to the internet, and by 2020, 67 percent of the world was supposed to be connected to the internet, and we've surpassed that. Yeah, yeah. In 2010, I was like, man, imagine how amazing that's going to be for the world. Think about all the value that's going to be extracted from that. We can, you know, overthrow corrupt governments. We can educate (sighs) people on things, and. You know, maybe we've succeeded in some aspects of that, but it really didn't really go to the direction that I was hopeful for. Yeah, it's um, like,
1: what, what, what would we, we ended up doing? we corrupted, overthrown governments. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. So, like, what did we do?
0: 20% of Google sor- searches are pornography related. I find that fascinating. I literally look, do you know that Pornhub puts out annual statistics, like the well, most yeah, comprehensive? I, yeah, for sure. I was like, looking through it the other day because a friend shared it online and I was like, how is that what we're spending all of our time on collectively?
1: So th- that's an interesting segue, because um, I, I, I have some specific things I want to get into with your direct career path. Mm-hmm. But on this on this tangent, I think it's worth going <laughs> down. Because the commodification is a problem right? The, the con- consumerism, no matter what the consumption is, is a problem. And you can look at like the internet amplified the ability to buy and purchase and stream and steal. And it really just amplified really bad human nature qualities. And that, that's that's why I think you have to be aware of um, when, when doing anything is like, like, what is the worst person going to do with the access of this technology? And that's where the internet pays off and also kind of crumbles, uh, which I think we're seeing because one of the hardest things for me to do is like to buy music through a service like Apple or Amazon or something like this Um, because I know the artist doesn't get it right like uh, what how uh, if i let's say there's a successful artist on apple and i buy their album or whatever on apple so let's say it's 10 bucks cuz i think that's the I
0: want to say that on an actual purchase the artist is making about 30% okay for a actual purchase through one yeah. of the dsp's but when you look at the streaming sales mm-hmm. right and not even sales at this point but like what artists are getting from uh, streams a million plays on spotify equates to about $3000 right <laughs> And that's pretty crazy, right? And that's so now nuts. if you're an artist that has really built themselves up and has the proper team and representation behind mm-hmm. you, like some of the big artists out there are seeing hundreds of millions of yeah. plays, if not billions of plays on some yeah. of their songs. And so they're making real money at that point, but they sure. also have massive overhead that gets paid out as a part of that. Sure. The um, I love talking about creative commodification, mm-hmm. by the way. I think that like emerging culture, creative mo- commodification, and like this spirit of rock and roll are like mm-hmm. my three topics I always come back to within mm-hmm. the industry. But when it comes to creative commodification, modification, the artists are making their money through live performance yeah. in merchandise T-shirt sales. sales. Yeah. In merchandise sales, like they're they have to give up a part of that as well. Yeah. You know, like the average promoter or venue split is usually 80-20 and then the artist is still paying for the cost of goods sold on that. So there is a difference though, if you're a fan and you want to support an artist, mm-hmm. I think that Vinyl is a unique way to do it. It's a very collector's oh, really? way to do it. But the artists are seeing a significant amount of uh, revenue from vinyl these days. There's been a massive resurgence because it costs more, right, to buy yeah. a piece of vinyl. and it's analog. And, and the split point on hard merch, so CDs, vinyl, anything that's not soft apparel, the split point is more in the artist's favor across the entire industry than in soft apparel. Mm. So there's more money being made by the artists in that regard. So that's a really cool way to support artists if yep. you are a collector the downside is and i fall into this category is that i'm not a collector right i don't want or feel that i need ownership of things yeah. necessarily maybe a few things that make me feel good about life like i just bought the a bike. bike and i'm stoked on that like that's you know and again like there's a sense of freedom and adventure that comes with that you know purchase mm-hmm. right but when it comes to music i love the idea of just having access you know yeah. and that's a challenging aspect is I think more and more, ideally, if we live in a perfect society in some yeah. ways, I think that all we really need is access. We don't need an entire garage filled with tools right. because we don't need to always be repairing things unless we're a mechanic or a carpenter. Oh, yeah. But if you're just fixing something in your house, all you need is just to borrow the drill. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that music is similar in that way unless you are a collector or you are a DJ and you're playing that music out on a consistent basis. Yeah,
1: that, man, what a rough subject because you so quickly get into like the roots of Marxism and non-property ownership. <laughs> you're, like it, it could bleed down, but I agree with you. Like, I mean, I, I don't want to own a lot and um, only because I know that behavior is amplified through everything that you do. You start consuming and you start consuming everything too much in every degree and music is one of those things that I've had to calm down about. Cause I used to just consume music, right? I would just like listen to it all the time, replay. Okay. Play the album. And then I was listening to music all the time. And I lost a lot of appreciation for it. Cause it's just like, when's the next good album? Or, I'm tired of that. Or like this. Is... And it's like, man, I, that does a disservice. Not, not just to the artist. Cause who gives a fuck honestly, but cause I don't know them, but <laughs> It does a disservice to the the uh, again the the sacred form of whatever you're consuming, and I, this is what I've landed on. Speaking of, you know, Pornhub and all of these other um, bringing it back, yeah, yeah, for sure, because C- um, a there's categories that pro- that make life proliferate, mm-hmm. right? That, like for all time, they're the important things, right? Um, food is one of them. Um, sex is the other one, and I would say community or celebration, which is very tightly linked to music, is the other one. Like you need, you need these things in order to survive as a human being. That's just the basics. And I think whenever you commodify anything that is of that sort of sacred nature, you run into a real problem where you like where you take something sacred and sell it, it becomes profane and it loses its ability to have power. A little bit, and if you so, if you look at the Pornhub thing, really interesting. Um, because if you look at how fucking disgusting Americans eat, like, mm. right, like it is perverse, right? It, it's like it's one of the worst things that I can see is that when I drive past the In and Out Burger on my way home, there will be a line all day for 24 hours a day for people just loading up like it's a non-stop let me get as let me gorge on this food on nutrient deficient
0: fast food 100% filled with garbage. vegetable oils yeah. seed oils yeah
1: terrible like the lowest quality and and the commodification there is like let's make as much money off of these people and let actually even worse let's flavor and design this food so people actually overeat it so they're actually in a worse spot for buying it and you're like okay that's you can see that that started to happen with fast food restaurants and the industrialization of food. You know, it really started back in the like late 1800s when DuPont and a lot of these industrialists were using um, byproduct of industrial waste as food product, tofu. You know, soybean protein, all of these things, uh, vegetable, rapeseed oil became, you know, Canada oil, which is canola oil. It's super (laughs) fucking weird. Like, that shit was designed as industrial waste. And now it's like consumed in massive quantities, right? Like, most before the industrial revolution, the amount of seed oils that a human being would get was less than 1% in their diet for caloric uh, uh, ratio. Now it's over 33% of your diet will be on the average is 33 percent seed oil a seed oil now if you look at it you're like that's there's no way but look at how your food is prepared processed packaged and it all has to do with seed oil it's super fucking gross but back to the uh you kind of look at i do hu- want
0: to shout out avocado oil though because that's not made from the seed so that's been <laughs> but continue on <laughs>
1: Most avocado oil that you're consuming is not actual avocado oil. There's no regulation to call it that. Oh, no. I know. Why got you to ruin that for me? It's feel so good about it, it for a, a minute. Huge, <laughs> it's a huge ruiner. Plus avocado, because it's a PUFA and a, and a monounsaturated fat, it's still gonna be beholden to spoiling and turning into arachnodonica. It, eat it, don't, don't let me freak <laughs> you out about it. Because the companies that are trying to do better are trying to do better, more props to them. Um, And and coconut oil sometimes tastes fucking terrible. So Um, so you go to this commodification, you see how people acted with like mass consumption of food. Basically, it was a Mm free-for-all. I can eat whatever I want whenever I want in as much quantity as I want. And you see a diseased population because of it. So now take that, put it into the other categories. And I go, um, shit, like I can... I can literally look at whatever I want to look at. In fact, I could probably order whatever like sexual thing that I'm into. I can take a thing that is responsible for the proliferation of my species. I can disrespect it and look at it. And again, I'm like, just to be clear, I'm not against porn. Like I, in fact, I have a real problem with people that kind of are because it just shows like a lack of recognition about what's going on but also i understand what they're talking about right it's like an mm-hmm. addict being like man a fucking drugs suck and you're like i'm glad you found your way but also calm the fuck down some like, people but, like them still yeah yeah some people <laughs> yeah or some people can actually handle their shit right like the nature of a human being to not use a, an inanimate object correctly is not uh to say that the inanimate ad, inanimate object is bad it Mm -hmm. just means your relationship to it is probably bad but i think we have a cultural misrelationship with things that are responsible for the proliferation of life and i think porn is one of them but i think music is another one that we don't i don't think we look at it correctly sometimes like as a way that people use it for mind control you know to jump into the conspiracy but you start going to political rallies they play certain types of music corded in certain Variations that really make the people do certain things, right? We,
0: we use music all the time within our workouts, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and there, oh, yeah. I don't remember the specifics of the study, but I remember being something along the lines of that you are X amount potentially more receptive to like the frequencies of music right Mm -hmm. and what you're listening to Mm -hmm. while you're engaged in intense physical Mm -hmm. expression right and so that then has an impact on you i used to listen to like really heavy gangster rap while lifting weights when i was younger and it was motivating right but then when i read the study and i was like all right well maybe that's not the healthiest thing what if i start listening to podcasts while i'm working out now granted It's not really the same, right? There's like a lack of enjoyment that comes with that. Uh I I wouldn't put it on a podcast while I was having sex, right? But like, (laughs) I definitely have an epic sex playlist. (laughs) Like you need to have that. And people who make the time to actually create sex playlists are my kind of people. Well, what's on your sex playlist? Um, The Moan Zone is the title of it, right? (laughs) (laughs) I actually stole that from somewhere. It's not actually called that. Um, it's diverse, right? It's very effective. And and I would venture to say efficient at times. Um, but yeah, no, it's dynamic. I really, what's <laughs> on my sex playlist? A lot of really soulful stuff. I would say that that would be the core of it. Okay. Right? Different tempos, different BPMs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you you want to create yeah, like yeah. an arc here, right? So, um, but no, I do think that there's, to just speak to what you're saying in terms of like us essentially degrading these various elements that give us life. Um, I would expand beyond that. Have you read uh, Recapture the Rapture yet? We talked about that. Jamie yeah, Williams, most book. Yet, yeah. he talks about the five things that we as humans have in our control to affect our state of mind, right? Mm-hmm. So he talks basically sex, drugs, rock and roll, so sexuality, pharmacology, and music, and then he goes into mm-hmm. breath and movement. Yeah. So those five things, right, I think resonate with where you're going with this. It doesn't really speak to nutrition at all but i think that's a component that could you know should go into that category yeah um and hydration water you know like these are the main things and so i agree with you completely that there is a bastardization that has existed for a while now and i want to say that it's kind of always been there yeah and maybe like the 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 frame of reference or where we define that to be has shifted culturally based upon like our agreed upon norms right like punk rock back in the day mm-hmm. right was looked at as like this really you know um aggressive lowbrow sort of music but mm-hmm. when you look at like what it came from contextually it was a response yeah. to everything being really formal to just being complacent to all these things and now we look at it with like this you know hindsight version of respect and reverence of being mm-hmm. like man that was awesome what they were doing at the time so you know i think that that can exist in all of these categories um when it comes to pornography i think that the main thing is much like food mm-hmm. is desensitization and you're only harming yourself if if you can't handle it
1: i, I yeah I, I think you kind of nailed it there i i think it is, i think there's an a pretty, again you can like look at pornography and and not be sucked into a world of consumerism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there can be this... I don't know. There can be an appreciation for what's going on. Like, I will always have the most respect for people that can actually do a, a career like that. Like, you're, you're essentially asking for, like, a death sentence, right? Like, th- this is, like, the end of... You're not going to ever do anything else once you enter into this mode, which is why it's potentially dangerous and we should educate people about the like downsides of it but also music is kind of the same right like once you enter into the commodification of music there there's a certain lifestyle that goes with it and i think we've seen plenty of examples of that going
0: south and you've probably experienced but, it's brutal it's no there's a reason why rock stars die young this yeah. industry, so one of my mentors within the music industry, um, I'll, I'll speak to him. His name is Tim Cook. He's mm-hmm. an incredible artist manager. Um, he represents Parangi, Yaima, Beautiful Chorus. Now mm-hmm. he came up with a band called Pod back in the day, oh, yeah, like a Christian, yeah. like rap-core metal band. He's worked with tons of artists. He's yeah. worked on soundtracks, um, but he's been in the game for a long time. And I remember just kind of seeking his advice at one point regarding some artist management stuff, mm-hmm. and. He's really seen the work that I've been trying to do with like these independently produced and promoted tours. And he's like, you're on to something with this. He's like, but I'm going to give you the same advice I give every single artist I work with. He's like, your chances of failure in this industry are so exponentially higher than your chances of success. And it's all yours to fuck up. And I was like, you tell all of your artists that when you start working with them? He's like, yeah, because it's the truth. He's like, there's pitfalls all around you. This industry is literally designed to destroy you To menu up, yeah and yeah. he's like you just need to accept that for what it is without yeah. judgment and that's your best chance essentially of being able to navigate it with a level of grace and more importantly i would say self-compassion because you're gonna fall victim to these things at times the question is yeah. can you look at it the next day as saying that's already in the past i'm back in the moment now what's the next thing
1: i mean mark told me something very similar about um uh, he said it was just like, I, I can't remember what I was doing, but I was talking about something having to do with like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this and then buy this car. Like, you know, we're looking at, and he was like, man, you got to be aware of the trappings of success. And I was like, man, it was just a car. Like, I'm not like buying a Ferrari or something, but what he was talking about was just the mindless idea that now that I've made it to a certain level, I can buy into this lifestyle because he was right. Like, all of this shit is temporary, right? And if you buy into a certain level, you're kind of stuck there. And I think what you're speaking to is kind of the same thing. If I get trapped into the, you know, people, if I was a musician, um, that was, you know, popular or successful in the, in regards to like record sales, it's so easy to get pulled in and to be changed, uh, because people are appreciating you and then you need to do certain things. And it says that you're buying your way into kind of a trap. um, I think, man, not very many people want to warn about the world. Like, hey, the, the world is kind of fucked up. And although you can do it, I, there's successful people in every industry that have managed to stay away from the pitfalls of that industry. And that that's a, that is a huge feature of like human will and determination and also a very steep learning curve, I think, for most people. Like it was very hard for me. Well, I, actually, I, it wasn't hard for me. It was actually, because I say it's hard, but it was actually like the natural thing is to reject celebrityism, right? To like go work with celebrities and like think that I wanted to be around them. Um what was hard about it was the idea that my career is uh, like my job and my income and my well being is attached to me making sure that I make more friends and influence people so that I can continue to have jobs and get paid from these things. So you're like running in a circle, everybody's like bowing down to these people. And I kind of rejected it off the hand of like, I'm not good at that. I'm very like a naysayer. like. Michael, do this, and I'm like, I'm going to do the opposite.
0: It makes you better, and I'd say that that's probably one of the most important things for anybody in the music industry to mm. have as a quality. At first, we all go into it, I think, with some level of like you know bright-eyed mm. attraction towards like, man, I get to work with this rock star. Yeah. But when you get to know these people yeah. at a certain period of time, like a lot of them are assholes, right? Sure. Like they have literally reinforced like their neuroticies through their hospitality riders. Yeah. I pulled this one from Jason Silva, he talks about that in a podcast he did. Um, but that's fascinating, right? Like yeah. I'm so uptight about what I need that I can't just be flexible and work with yeah. what's available to me in this moment. Um, so you're dealing with like these reinforced egos a lot of times when you're talking about like the highest level of rock yeah. star or you know pop star, whatever it is. Um, and then beyond that, it's like, at some point you realize that they're just another human. And more than anything, one of the biggest things as it relates to this as well, is that the value, the real value that exists in working with these individuals, these celebrities, if you will, is not in working with them. It's the people that you meet along the way that are part of their team, right? Um, I really experienced that with Aubrey and his Mm -hmm. team um i would say that a number of the like the larger artists that i've worked with i've had that experience mm-hmm. um i'm way closer with people that i was essentially in the trenches with for sure than with the artists themselves and that makes total sense yeah. right so the quicker you can get to that point of like disillusionment i guess yeah. you know and just really kind of like bring people back to like a level playing field and remember hey this is just another human being and to just stay in i don't want to say stay in your lane but like stay true to what it is that you know you're there to do or why you're there to do it Mm -hmm. you have such a leg up on everybody else i would say that like you had mentioned the people that get through whatever industry it is without falling into the pitfalls Mm -hmm. i'm more interested in people that fell into the pitfalls and pulled themselves out yeah because like they learned the lessons like they're Like, that was their battle. Like, they earned those stripes, and as a result, they're in a better position of leadership to help others move through that.
1: There's definitely, like, a direct experience thing that works. I also see, like, (laughs) when you say, like, you know, maybe the the celebrity, maybe the person that's put on a pedestal will be kind of an asshole. I think most of the time, now that I've met plenty of them, most of the time— they're not necessarily assholes or if they're acting like an asshole, it's because they also realize that they're only human mm. and that like that drives them crazy because a lot of people have this idea. They celebritize themselves. Like most of the damage is going to come from them, um, putting themselves on a pedestal, creating the pressure. Yeah, exactly. Themselves. And and that's where like, man, a lot of bad shit can happen if you put yourself on a, on a pedestal in any industry, like no matter what you're a part of, it's just, is part of it. Um, now that we're deep into it, how do you how do you describe your profession and like how did you get into it and how to like now what are you doing?
0: That's a really tough question to answer these days. Um, jack of all trades, master of self is one that I've used for a long time. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, jackass of all trades occasionally. <laughs> um, so I am an event industry professional at this point. Um, I've worn so many hats. I've been in this industry full time now for fourteen years. Um, Starting where I got into it, I grew up in Florida and living in Florida is a hospitality based state. You know, I worked in food and beverage, waited tables, bartended. Um, I ended up working at this nightclub in downtown St. Pete called Vintage Ultra Lounge. Hmm. And it was like a male version of Coyote Ugly. All male bartenders, (laughs) excessive amounts of partying, really good times, Hmm. made great tips at a young age, in my early 20s, but the back door of the club led to the backstage of a 2,000 person standing room only concert venue called Janice Landing at the time. And I grew up in St. Pete, Florida. So I went to that venue when I was like 11, 12, 13 mm. years old. My first concert was Prince when I was oh, 11. And no I, I got lucky with that one. My parents had great taste in music. Um, that was at like a major arena. But then my second concert was Jimmy Cliff at this venue so i'd gone to concerts as a kid at this venue i always had like this deep appreciation for what i call like the beating heart of downtown st pete and any chance i had to take a break on any given weekend night i would walk to the back of this you know club that i was working at. i'd open up the doors and i just watched these rock bands you know slay it and this this venue has a history of like pearl jam and um who was the other like really big one there's back-to-back shows that happened in like The late 80s, early 90s, and like the promoter at the time got taken to jail for breaking the sound ordinance of the city. And like it really put like this venue on the map. But incredible venue. Anyways, the story goes on that I end up working at that venue Mm -hmm. under a rebrand as a bartender. Um, within a couple months, I asked for a shot to start throwing shows at the venue on off nights and I turned out to be really good at it and I brought in thousands of people through the door of this venue when it was like otherwise busy nights. So we had this thing called First Friday so there was huge traffic downtown. I was like, let's put local bands that have skills up on stage mm-hmm. so then I really quickly got into this role of being like a and sort of You know, rep in terms of while it wasn't like artist repertoire I was finding talent to be able to book on stage so local promoter Mm -hmm. Um, that led to me doing or being a part of about 500 shows in about 3 years at a very iconic venue in Florida Um, moving forward in the conversation like that's where I learned promotion Mm -hmm. at the core Um, a friend of mine died um, from a cocaine overdose uh, that was a part of that venue and I kind of Took stock of what was going on around me mm-hmm. and I saw the trajectory that I was on. I was not acting any more healthy at that point in my career. Yeah. Uh, and I quit, literally on the spot. I was like, I need to make a change. And I moved to St. Augustine, Florida at that point, um, which wasn't that far away, but I love that city. Mm. And I thought I was gonna get out of the industry. I thought I was gonna go back to food and beverage. I was like, you know, I don't see that being like the trajectory for me. Mm-hmm. But within months of being in St. Augustine, this new venue opened up. And I quickly found myself interested in working with them. Mm -hmm. And right away, I got a job doing the same thing I was doing at a little bit more intimate of a venue. Um, Really fulfilling experience. I was called the Standard while it was there. Um, And that's really where I got into festivals, right? So Mm -hmm. I remember learning about Envision Festival in Costa Rica. And Envision Festival, uh, if you're not familiar, is like Burning Man in the the Jungle, but for like 10,000 people. I went there and it was, you know, my first quote-unquote burn experience. It was being around more open-minded, you know, uh, culturally emergent, creative, beautiful, eccentric human beings. Mm -hmm. And many people who I found had a similar experience that I had had at Janus, which was I was kind of tired of like the stereotypical sex, drugs, and rock and roll cliche, Mm -hmm. and I wanted something more from it. And... uh, I found community. And so that then led to a number of different opportunities from continuing on at The Standard. Um, I got a opportunity to go to Asheville, North Carolina and be a part of a couple different venue openings. Mm. Um, I started working with the band Rising Appalachia for three years. Um, I was their marketing coordinator and tour publicist. Um, while that was going on, I had the opportunity to work remotely, so I moved down to Costa Rica, continued to work with Envision for four years. I was with the marketing department with Justin Brothers, who was one of the original founders. Um, Long story short, it's kind of like the length of it, um, I get, I reach out to Von Carrick, who is a Utah-based uh, uh, promotion and production company owner, Live Night Events. Uh, he was throwing a festival in Florida at the time, Reggae Rise Up. I reached out cold, I was like, hey, you're producing this festival in a city that I kind of came up in. You know, I'm partners in some different entertainment operations down there. I'd love the opportunity to work with you. Um, I sold myself really hard. He yeah. ended up saying, sure, come on and do this. And, it was a great relationship. Like from the start, like everything felt really in alignment. Um, I was super excited to work in a genre that I had a lot of respect for at the time—reggae. Again, still have a lot of respect and reverence for it. But after, you know, a decade plus of being in the scene, my my interests have shifted a bit. They've evolved. Yeah. Um, about a year after the first show of us working together in Florida, maybe a year and a half. Vaughn invited me out here to Utah to basically take over media direction, which is what I do for the festivals at large for a festival property here called Bonanza Campout. I came out here, this was in the summer of 2017, and um, we did the festival. Vaughn was like, you should stay for Reggae Rise Up Utah, which was like five weeks later. I was like, I'm into this. I was living in a house at a time with like three other music industry professionals that are, you know, doing really cool things in Salt Lake City. So I was like, this feels more intellectually stimulating. You know, This is different than me just getting stoned, drinking rum and surfing every day (laughs) while working from my computer in Costa Rica. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Two weeks into that stay, everything I owned in Costa Rica got stolen. My car, 10 grand in surf equipment, all of my belongings. I literally came here with a duffel bag and a backpack and I kind of had to take stock for a second. I was like, "What what am I gonna do? I was planning on going back. And so it was one of those moments where you hear the joke like, well, I live here now, you know, (laughs) it's like, well, I guess I live here now. (laughs) Um, But I really fell in love with the space really quickly. And so I started working with uh, Vaughn and Live Night Events in partnership on a lot of different projects. Um, And... At this point, you know, again, that's kind of like where I come from in the music industry and how I got to this point, I started doing a little bit of everything, you know, like over the 14 years that I've been in it, I went through a lot of financial frustration, as I spoke to earlier. And so when you go through that and you're committed to just doing this and this is it, you're not like waiting tables anymore on the side, you don't have some other backup gig, you know, you're fully in it. You're like, okay, well, maybe this gig opportunity that I just found or came my way isn't exactly what I was doing, Mm -hmm. but it's close enough and I can pull it off. Sure, I'll take it. And so all of a sudden, you kind of like become like a restaurant general manager in that you now know a little bit about all these various positions. And that's super important to be able to be in a position of directing others in large-scale projects such as festivals or tours. Yeah. And so where that's led me to now, the main projects that I'm involved in, there's the monthly event that I host here in Salt Lake called Syndicate, which is like a monthly celebration of and platform for creative expression, community connection within like the burner culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been going on for three years now, uh, along with touring operations with a lot of artists that are in the medicine scene as we spoke to. So East Forest, Purangi, works with Yaima on something recently. Um, and I'm venturing out to do more of that and then festival production you know what i just did yeah. with aubrey marcus and the arcadia festival along with working on any project that vaughn and live Night events brings me on to for you know again like running a specific role within these greater teams yeah. so it's a lot of different stuff i wear a lot of different hats um i manage a few different artists as well right now that's been a newer thing over the course of the, like the last six to eight months but it feels really good because mm-hmm. there's a lot of I have a platform that I'm able to you know plug these artists into, essentially or a network yeah. that I can plug these artists into that help cultivate their exposure, their career and uh yeah, I mean, I just I am this like mm-hmm. I have no backup plan, there's no plan B, like mm-hmm. I will be doing this until the day I die, and I hope that that's down the road and not like the cliche youthful death <laughs> that a lot of people experience in this industry um. <laughs> and i'd like to thank you for hopefully not ending up that way by being in the you know the space with you guys keeping it balanced but yeah man that's uh the best way to articulate what i do so event direction mm-hmm. artist management um promotional management tour development and production a little bit of everything right now and
1: you've, so you've recently had like a pretty wacky last 10 weeks because mm. it seems like all of these jobs kind of I don't know they all kind of came together all at once you're basically doing all of them all at once and that was it was pretty hectic do you it, it, i mean is it sustain is this kind of line of work sustainable f- from that aspect or like if you were just doing this all the time, if you had to do the last 10 weeks over and over and over
0: again repetitive like repetitively how long would it last I have I I can't speak to how long it would last, but I continue to reference um, what I learned from you regarding endurance throughout mm-hmm. this entire process, and I'll speak to that real quick. Yeah. So I love the I love the podcast that you talk about endurance. You talk about like the three stages of endurance, mm-hmm. so like spite, curiosity, love, mm-hmm. right? And I love this, so therefore I know that I have it in me to out-suffer yeah. my competition, right? Yeah. This is a very competitive mm-hmm. industry. Like in many ways, I would say that this industry, in terms of its competitive nature, would compared to like sports in some Mm -hmm. way or another, right? Like you are up against other people for gigs and opportunities every single day. Um, And so given the fact that I love it, I know I have it in myself to endure. The most challenging part of it, I would say in terms of like the sustainability question is like how hard many of us are in the industry, how hard I am on myself, Mm -hmm. right? I, it was so me- the last ten weeks have been incredibly messy, and I don't like being that way, yeah. right? It's kind of like being in a you know a 40 to 60 minute effort in the space with you, mm-hmm. and watching my form go to shit in the process of me literally pressing like my physical edge. Right, There's only so much that you can do with the bandwidth that you have, but you have to be committed to seeing it through. Like show Mm -hmm. up, be present, breathe, return to your intention. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like an ayahuasca ceremony, right? And like be in it, like be there, (laughs) just embrace the suck and Mm -hmm. know that like when you get to the other end, like you're gonna be, you're gonna feel better for it. You're gonna be better for it. Um, That's what the last 10 weeks was really like. And there were like rest intervals Mm -hmm. within that period. So I'm grateful for that, but it was nuts, you know, like, 10 weeks ago, I was producing this big event in Los Angeles uh, for Numinous, a psychedelic therapy firm, Mm -hmm. East Forest, John Hopkins, and Superposition, which is Justin Perretta's side project from Glitch Mob. Um, literally championing essentially psychedelic therapy in a public space, Mm -hmm. right? Like This was a ceremony for 300 people in downtown Los Angeles where I had never seen a more creative mix of substances being used by a group of individuals in (laughs) one area with like five hours of guided music. It was insane. I literally had to personally go sit with people who were having challenging experiences in the middle. Like we had sitters, but like it was a lot, like a big space to hold. So like there was a huge amount of production that went into that. What I experienced, like the this is great going back to your endurance, uh, you know, perspective is like the reality no longer matched the expectation, (laughs) right? And so I was like, wow, this is what I'm doing right now. Rewrite this. Yeah, I was like, I this is what I signed myself up for. So time to show up. So got through that, went right into tour with Perangi, right, which was, um, it's been great. Perangi is a incredible musician. Yeah. Um, You know, there is a difference in the way in which we engage within the industry that we had to learn with Mm -hmm. one another on the road. Um, but being on the road is just challenging to begin with, right? Especially when you're still at the level where you're playing 300 to 600 person rooms. Like you're not getting the sort of creature comforts of 2000 person venues, right? So like you're, you're road dogging it. Like you're literally bootstrapping, Mm -hmm. you're finding ways to shave expenses Mm -hmm. and you're putting your offering out there, you know, across the United States or the world, depending upon like how expansive your tour is. So went through that. He ended up getting sick and contracting COVID. So we had to postpone a number of dates on the tour. I came back to Salt Lake. That then led into a week later. I want to say not even a week later. um, I've been working with uh, Aubrey Marcus and his team to produce Arcadia, which was scheduled for Alpine, Wyoming. Incredible Mm. festival lineup that I was super proud of. Incredible offering that I was really excited to be a part in like directing and bringing to fruition. Um, Three weeks from our week of long story, but to get to the core of it, we were no longer gonna be able to produce the festival in Alpine, Wyoming. And Aubrey (laughs) decided the next day to move the entire festival from Alpine, Wyoming to Las Vegas, Nevada at Area 15. Different product (laughs) offering, different city. I've never seen this done in my entire career. And I've witnessed and been a part of festivals that have had to cancel and Mm -hmm. postpone. So in three weeks, the entire team moved the festival. So that became literally all I was doing, right? Mm -hmm. While still, preparing for handling and wrapping the postponement of the Perogi tour and then regularize up Maryland, which was our inaugural year this past weekend. All of this was happening at once, pull off the festival, a week of just being in Vegas, 14 to 16 hour days partying when we weren't working, straight <laughs> rock star vibes. Um, and then going right into regularize up Maryland on the other end and immediately coming back and like while taking a couple days to like mm-hmm. chill, being ready to like get in the saddle and start to put things together for future projects so that was like the last 10 weeks in a nutshell um that if it was to continue is not sustainable i Mm -hmm. think that like the main thing that i really need to do on my end is to learn to get further ahead of it and have more lead time but at the same time, we work in an industry that is incredibly opportunistic and yeah. things will drop in your lap and you're like, okay, cool, that seems like rad. And many of us that are in this love challenges. Yeah, you gotta run
1: with it. Yeah, and it seems like uh, there's just an inherent uh, attraction to problem solving. But yeah. that seems to be, I mean, it's, I, I said this the other day because I, 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 I kind of meant it it's like people, if, if most people are bad at solving problems, and they're good at collecting problems, and you you need to be both, right? Like, if you're just collecting problems, you don't know how to sum. You're just you're just you're gonna cause a tower to collapse eventually.
0: Manifesting generator shit, right there.
1: Exactly, hundred <laughs> percent. It's in your design to do this kind of shit. Um, but it seems like, I mean, like how we when people hire us to do something like it's in the realm of fitness or nutrition or, or something lifestyle related but essentially what they're asking is for to like have somebody come in and solve a problem for them i don't know how to do x or i don't know why i can't do this or how do i prepare best for this problem that's essentially what you're asking for and it, that like that gives me personally a lot of value like um a lot of people i don't, I don't think they see their value but when when somebody's like, hey, uh, will you help me with this? I'm like, yeah, you can identify that I'm a very good problem solver. Now, if, if you went by human design, funny enough, um, you can only apply that sometimes to other people. It's very rare that you can use your problem-solving mind for your own thing. So how I... How I look at it now is like when you build whatever industry you're into, if you're going to be a problem solver, you also need to have a problem solver for yourself, somebody to look at you introspectively. And I think this is what most people miss, right? Um, If you go back to the old Soviet method and they're, they're kind of like responsible for establishing everything that we know about scientifically based training methods, especially in the strength and power sports, they know basically all data comes from them. Now, it's because they had a full access to a population and they could just tell them what to do. They could also uh, weed out and funnel people who had the right physiological somatotypes in order to apply these sport methods. But then one of the biggest things that people miss about their method is they had all this established curriculum, but they would apply their practice. And if a coach or in a, what they call a master of sport, which took a while to earn, you would have to apply your practice. And if you apply it at the state level, you have to have other coaches look over your program to give you criticism back. Mm. And that, that is what I think most people miss is like, there needs to be a very, very good problem solver for the problem solver. Right. And it's, it's not hierarchical, right? It could be somebody below me that does it for me. It could be somebody above me that does it. It could be somebody next to me. They could be at my same, you know, it could be a colleague, it could be anybody, but that- a peer
0: review, essentially.
1: Exactly. And that, that, man, we had this session yesterday. They're really hard to do um, because I've been having some issues on the capacity manual. Uh, Nothing like big, um, but man, I can't bridge one subject and the other. And so Mark finally touched it and he's like, okay, sit down. And he like- Here's what I see as the problem. Here's where I think you went. Here's where the metaphors get too mixed. Here's where, and you're like, it's like an hour of like, this is all the shit that you did wrong. But when you're used to that space, you're like, thank you. Like somebody can see it because I can't see it myself anymore. I've been working on it too long. So you're like, you know, myopically looking at these things. And it sounds like uh, you might have found In industry where you fit in as a problem solver and you've surrounded yourself with other problem solvers, therefore, you can kind of accomplish anything you want. It's just you got to stay in the sustainable path like we can we can we can go into hyperdrive and then we can start doing symposiums, book releases, you know, uh, traveling. We can do all of that for a little bit. But then we need to like shut it down and come back and calm down. Uh, otherwise, man, you burn out so quick. It's a really rough.
0: We're in no off season, right? Like that's the yeah. the world that we live in now, and it's it's a mm. I don't know. It's it's not real, you know. We look at it from the Instagram lens perspective, mm-hmm. you know, this comparative model of what other people are doing. Like, how are other people putting out this content continuously? Where yeah. are the breaks that they're taking, right? Yeah. Um, I do think that you know you build up on levels, you know, like looking back where I was a year ago right? Let alone 10 years ago. Like I know that my inherent knowledge Mm -hmm. and ability to problem solve within these settings is undeniable. But I also know where I stand to grow from these experiences where I can see, you know, the, the weaknesses within my own set of skills. And then it's like, okay, well, who am I looking towards in terms of mentorship or partnership to be able to either handle those things or learn to like buttress and reinforce my own abilities in that. And so I think that that's, I knew what I was getting into three months ago. And I remember looking at it and like like literally looking at my calendar and being like, I know I'm not gonna love this. I know that I love it, but I know that like the the reality is like I'm gonna hit that point where like what I enjoy about this is no longer gonna be necessarily enjoyable. And I'm gonna run into like messiness. You know, my Mm -hmm. spreadsheets aren't gonna be dialed in and perfect, you Mm -hmm. know, like you know, my email inbox is gonna be a mess, right? Mm-hmm. Like my communications with people aren't gonna necessarily be as present as I really you're want gonna them
1: experience to be. entropy.
0: Want, yeah, exactly. Right, yeah, 100 <laughs> percent and dehydration while yeah, you're yeah, at yeah, right. Yeah. And so, you know, I remember looking at it and being like, Am I is this really what I want to do? Is this how I want to approach it? Mm-hmm. And then like the the overriding voice in my head was just do it and get through it and then see what that feels like on the other side. Um, and on the other side, outside of the fatigue, outside of just like the sheer exhaustion that Mm -hmm. came as a byproduct of this, um, there's no, you don't, you can't buy that kind of education. You cannot, you just can't, you can't go to a university Mm -hmm. or take an online class or even find a coach. No, right. No, one's going to give that to you, at least in this industry, maybe you can do it in other things, but you have to just learn the th- learn the thing by doing the thing. Yeah. You and I have talked about that yeah, yeah. endlessly. So at this point, like I really don't think that there's any specific aspects of tour production or festival production that I don't at least have a cognitive awareness of. Maybe I'm not an expert in those specific things, yeah, yeah. but at least I know when a certain aspect of, a certain department, if you mm-hmm. will, or aspect or step of planning whatever it is isn't being addressed appropriately and being able to call that out because at the end of the day my job is to either direct teams to do both of these things but to direct teams and on the other side to be responsible to a client of some form or another right so making sure that those things are being addressed and there's no getting it like Perfect in this industry, right? As much as we mm-hmm. want to, and that's where it's like being okay with aspects of the messiness, mm-hmm. and that's like getting over my own like hypocritical OCD issues. Not yeah. that I am OCD, right? There's plenty of ways in which I'm not, yeah. but in my mind, like I want to be really neat and tidy and perfect. Um,
1: yeah, that's not that's not obsessively compulsive disorder. It's order. Yeah. <laughs> it's OCO.
0: Yeah, OCO is where it's at. So, I mean, those are the main takeaways from it in that regard, and then just like a reminder, like you were saying, in terms of like authenticity, um, you know, I really want to do things that are in the spirit of rock and roll, right? Like, I think that it doesn't matter if it's medicine music or not, um, if we're in that that realm. Like, is it emergent? Is it unique? Is it original? I will say out of all of the artists that I've been working with, Mm -hmm. that I do think at East Forest, Krishna, Mm -hmm. is the most rock and roll individual. Like he has that spirit of rock and roll in him that I believe is going to make him one of the, greatest potential artist of our time, right? He's like, he stands alone in what he does. Um, He continues to put out incredibly original and creative music. Mm -hmm. He's committed to the path. He looks at Mm -hmm. it from a spiritual perspective, but also understands how to format his music in a way that is consumable to a mainstream audience. And he's bridging worlds. Like he's literally at the intersection between this entire renaissance of psychedelic therapy Mm -hmm. and really, really, like profoundly, technical music, you know, as a pianist, like yeah. a classically trained pianist, like he's making like masterpiece work, in my opinion, right, yeah. in my perspective. And the way he approaches it, like he's not trying to be an, like a specific sort of like stereotypical rock star or musician. He's yeah. just him. He's not trying to look a certain way, be a certain way, posture a certain way. He's just being himself. And it makes him the thing that we all really want to gravitate towards within this realm of creative expression. Yeah. And so, you know, remembering who I'm in service to mm-hmm. and really honoring the people who have chosen to bring me into their projects mm-hmm. or have invested in me in some way is another thing. Like don't ever underestimate like the fear of letting people down and like how that can motivate <laughs> you to do impossible yeah. things. I
1: just, I just don't want to be the person that fucks up. Yeah, like, exactly. That's, like, a lot of the time that's like, why are you so motivated? Like, man, I don't want to drop the fucking ball um, on this. Cause this is a, a lot of people the medicine music thing is really interesting um because i wasn't exposed to it until you know maybe 2015 16 and and then it was like oh this is like different music and i didn't really have an appreciation for it until obviously we had like some psychedelic experiences and like that kind of shifts how you view music um and this is where it gets really weird because you get into this I am a huge skeptic of psychedelic therapy as an industry, right? As I think everybody should be. Um, If you've seen any industry take over a certain subject, you should be very skeptical about um, really bad incentives as in profit margins and things working of the sort. And this is like something that I notice in the I guess you could say the the medicine music space. So we joked about it earlier, but you're like, you mean America's next top shaman mm-hmm. kind of deal? And it, there's there's almost no joke there. Like it's like, man, we we bring all those subjects we kind of talked about before: cultural appropriation and and you, know, and, and, and toxicity and it brings you to this part where you get even even uh, audience capture where people are becoming these caricatures of um of just like a culture like a subculture like a subgenre um and obviously like the artists um that are responsible for the theme music that goes behind this um are, are definitely playing into it you know as and i saw this to give you like a, a better example uh, when i was in the hair industry there's these uh there, there's a side of the hair industry is like these uh, conventions and that's a huge part for like any industry is to have conventions so people that work in the industry can come learn new things and so one of the like most successful aspects of being a hairdresser is also being a platform artist performing on stage and showing other people how to do the techniques that you think other people should learn so it's kind of like a but it's really weird because you get into hairdressing and like everybody wears black everybody's you know it's like it, you look like you work in a salon when you work in a salon your hair is usually weird or whatever
0: Calvin Klein commercial i can see it yeah exactly very black and white monotone
1: yeah it's it, that's that's kind of it and then you go to the, you see these platform artists and they're that, but they're like on steroids. And not like, I mean, like drugs to make them no, muscular, but they're look, at, they they basically look like they're in Pirates of the Caribbean.
0: It's like, a flamboyancy.
1: For sure, yeah, they, they accentuate all of the parts of culture and they, in some degrees, they're really influencing, what people below them should look dress, talk like you know it's this top down kind of thing and the famous one is robert Cromines. like he's this hairdresser he's scottish i'm going to quote that one uh because he has a scottish accent but i believe if i'm correct he's from denver <laughs> which fucking beautiful like what a way to actually be a caricature and in, in like amplify whatever it is, your, your fame or, or your notoriety by just being a little bit weird. Um, but man, every time he showed up, I'm like, he looks like a fucking pirate, like a pirate that got hit with like a bedazzler or something. Like, it's just like <laughs> over the top. And, you know, obviously he knows how to do hair, but no one, uh, maybe I should say that no one would respect any of the hair that he did. That is actually good at it, but he still had this popularity because he had a showmanship that was fucking, uh, the best that you could ever see he could entertain a crowd and that's what i see a lot with artistry is like it's a showmanship and then maybe the skill and talent to back it up and this becomes the thing but the problem becomes when i see it now you start mixing in so you have like the music industry that's shifting towards this medicine space that might be appropriating shamanic culture and shamanic practices and then they're transferring that into an industry that needs to make money off of the sales of psychedelics, but the sales of therapeutic psychedelics, which means we need to like now incorporate pharmaceutical companies and health, like, uh, uh, you know, medical companies, and then also the music industry. It's like, man, you guys are really like, I I don't think people recognize how dangerous this whole thing is. And not dangerous as in someone's going to get hurt, but you're really going to like... I don't know. We'll be we'll be back pretty soon to where we were, where these things are just illegal, right? Like,
0: so I think 100% agree with you. You know, we're setting a precedence, mm-hmm. and I think that the cultural access point of the decriminalization or legalization of psychedelics should not be limited to the medical avenues, mm-hmm. right? Most Same. people believe yeah. that that's like the way forward, and For sure. I think that um, uh, the name's not coming to me right now. Uh, the founder of Maps, Maps yeah, um, what was his name? I can
1: I, I lose it every time. I'm <sighs> talking about. So like. Bruce he, Bryce, no, um,
0: yeah, whatever. It'll come to us yeah. before this is over, I'm sure. But anyways, like he literally, did you watch How to Change Your Mind? The documentary. You read uh-huh. the book, right? Yeah. So fascinated with that. But you know, he literally created the model on how to like go about the legalization through mm-hmm. the medical avenues. I think it's bullshit. I think yeah. that it's important to have that. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, I think it's incredible to it's have a, that. It's a way. A way. I mean, but we should not be discrediting either or the you know spiritual context Mm -hmm. of these medicines where they existed for all of eternity except for the chemicals that we're synthesizing Mm -hmm. now right and or like recreational like who are we to judge other people like i i'm very libertarian in my beliefs in that regard um, for that specific you know segment of legalization but i i'm worried that that ends up being like the only avenue as it relates to You know, the protection of, um, I don't know, like our youth as it relates to marginalized communities or people with, like, you know, uh, that are predisposed to psychotic breaks and things like Mm -hmm. that. Like, culturally, can't we just do a better job of looking out for these individuals? Like, does it have to be? prescribed by somebody for people to then go ahead and do it and even if it is prescribed by somebody like what's stopping those same things from happening i guess there's more protection more resources for integration of challenging experiences etc that that's the issue and i agree with you i guess yeah. is where i'm going with that is mm-hmm. that yes and also um it's literally just again we talk we're talking about the emerging culture and so yeah. creatives that are out there really living that life that are out there creating every single day and mm-hmm. they're on that edge i think that there's a it makes sense that they're coming together in this way. And going down to like, you know, coming back to like the concept of Icarus, Mm -hmm. right? Like music moves the energy of those experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I completely understand why East Forest was drawn to that. Mm -hmm. And again, before before he started, you know, before we started collectively doing these ceremony concerts and for anybody that's like not familiar with East Forest that's mm-hmm. listening to the, your podcast or oh, not this yeah. podcast, like we create these ceremony performances that have up to 300 people in attendance mm-hmm. all laying down on yoga mats. The, you know, East Forest is in the center of the room and we do a quadraphonic deployment of the speaker system in the four corners mm-hmm. projecting back into the center. So it's like a very high end production sound bath experience. Mm-hmm. And we bring out a uh, grand piano for this cause he's a piano player and he has his looping station. And he'll play for hours while people are. We, we don't encourage people to come out and dose. We mm-hmm. we actually have like disclaimers about this that yeah. this experience is designed to be meditative, and that the experience it's, itself is enough. Uh huh. Yeah. It, it totally is right. Um. But obviously, people who are turned on and you know familiar with his music and who his have tuned
1: in and tuned in and dropped out exactly. Or yeah. yeah, they're out there dosing for yeah. sure.
0: I mean, we we have uh safety measures in place for. Challenging psychedelic experiences that may arise at these, you know, these events that we're doing, um, because it's the responsible thing to do at this yeah. point. I think all industry professionals should be trained in like Zendo or something similar. Yeah. Um, but you know, I guess where I'm going with it is like, it is modern day Icaros, right? Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, your medicine music playlist that currently features a lot of like electronic artists that mm-hmm. are integrating native instrumentation, such as Perangi or any of like, there's a huge list of artists in this realm that I work with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it just makes sense. It really does. And there are, There needs to be some sort of guidance for these settings. So, when East Forest came on the scene, like really heavily, Mm -hmm. you know, he'd been doing these like performances, these ceremony performances for a decade before that. When he released, when he produced and released Music uh, for Mushrooms, a soundtrack for the psychedelic practitioner, that's when like all the studies were happening in the major universities. So, they all started utilizing his album. As a guide for this, so it just made sense, yeah. And he's really championed that. And his partner, uh, Marissa Webner, is a uh, ketamine counselor or Uh, clinician, so like they're just very tied to that whole scene. Um, obviously, like you know, you listen to Perangi's music, and it's very tied to uh, ayahuasca in terms of like the sonic elements associated Mm -hmm. with it. Like, he has music literally for it. He he created the soundtrack for Aubrey Marcus's ayahuasca documentary. documentary. Um, so these things are just tied together culturally. And I, I'm appreciative of that. I yeah. think it's cool. I think that where going back to where you know this segment of our conversation kind of started is mm-hmm. there's not necessarily a danger, I think. Maybe there is, but I think more of like a a pitfall of typecasting yourself yeah. or over identifying with something that then limits your full experience of what it is to be human and to engage in tons of different things. And I really love and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, but I love your story that you share with me about you playing like a punk rock song in a ceremony. Oh yeah. Right. And that's like the best example of it. Like why not? You know, like <laughs> let's mix it up. Let's be a little bit more original. I don't want to see the hot topification of, you know, the spiritual scene. Like for I, sure. I'm not into that.
1: Yeah. I'm not, I'm not either. And I, I do have like a real appreciation for the roots of like where this music comes from. Uh, and, and like, man i've been in so many like different discussions with people talking about some skeptics that are like oh we need to do the scientific realm and they know the most about it And man i totally disagree with that like there are cultures that have been using these substances and not just the substances the the practice of holding these spaces that contain these substances for thousands of years like I kind of trust them more than I trust somebody with a microscope at this point. And that, that's where I have like a huge skepticism about identifying the molecule that causes an effect and then just applying that molecule because that's not how any of this stuff works, right? Like we might think that it does and it, you might be able to identify, well, in this plant, this thing connects to this you know, receptor center and that will you know, reduce the default mode network. And you're like, great, that, that might be part of it right that that might be part of the experience but there is an there is something else going on that is inexplicable and that that's where i think the danger is is like people trying to explain the inexplicable world never really ends well it ends in cults or strong government regulation in one of those varying
0: forms or just very like vulnerable mental perspectives of individuals that don't have a solid footing in reality yeah which is why like again all of these things that we're talking about within the realm of psychedelia are external right like Mm -hmm. i'm taking the substance i'm putting it in my body Mm -hmm. and as a result there's going to be an effect I was incredibly apprehensive about engaging with ayahuasca for a long time, Mm -hmm. right? I had plenty of opportunities when I lived in Costa Rica and I always turned it down because it didn't feel right. I actually Mm -hmm. didn't sit until moving to Salt Lake, right? And so as a result, not as a result, but I guess like the foundation of it is like, what are the practices that you can have in your daily routine mm-hmm. that allow you to get more grounded, more centered, that keep you more engaged with the world around you in a positive way? Whether it's yeah. yoga, meditation, breath work, you know, like intense exercise, yeah. uh, adrenaline-seeking adventure sort of sports, like all of these things can produce these you know transcendental states and yep. experiences within you. Without that, so when you use these things, like it's it's not a it's not a silver bullet. It's not gonna just fix everything. The chemical itself mm-hmm. is not the it's not what's gonna do it. it right There's it's a not lot, the Holy Grail. It's not yeah. and you know a lot of people would say like, this is always you know going back to like the the things that are said and heard frequently in these spaces is that like the medicine will do its work. Yeah I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that just taking the medicine is actually fixing things. Like right. they say that with like microdosing that yeah. it will you know rewire circuitry within your brain essentially. Maybe there's some truth to it, but I think that like the majority of it comes down to what are you doing with the experience that you had, yeah. right? We were talking about cannabis the other day and like it's those, you know, panic attack moments yeah. in like a heavy cannabis state, you know, where you're really, really high that make you like oversensitive and over-focused on some aspect of your life or being that all of a sudden you're addressing, panic. the, yeah, you're panicking right. about it. So you're like, man, I should address that, yeah. right? I think that, we we speak to like integration as a result. It's like you can do all the mm-hmm. ayahuasca or psilocybin that you want, but like, are you actually like integrating the lessons that you have learned or hopefully gleaned as an experience of this? Um, and also like the set and setting, like what's your intention of going into that space? You know, are you actually cultivating a setting that's going to hold you safely yeah. as you engage in that? and i agree with you that i think that like the the spiritual ceremonial spaces are better equipped mostly just because those people have a profound amount of experience themselves usually working with those substances
1: so this is where um i've become really interested because man i do not recommend that anybody does them right like i'm not i'm not a promoter of substances if i never did them again i would be just fine like there's beneficial experiences but what I've come to realize is that the the housing of those experiences, the culture that actually holds up those practices is far more po- potent than I ever would have thought. And that, that's talking about controlling the environment, controlling your state, and then controlling, uh, not, not necessarily just a control as a control freak, but orchestrating um, your state so that you can be open to internal monologue, external advice, like all of this is kind of the situation that you can really grow profoundly. And that's, I look at it like I need to induce a state where I'm open to receive certain information. And then I that information, who knows where it comes from kind of deal. It could be an epiphany from my own brain. It could be a divine revelation, whatever you want to describe it as. I just, I need to induce this state so that i can be open to changing my behavior and that that really is like for me the foundation of what i think the practice is and that's a sacred practice that's when you what do you call ceremony or sacred it's like I, no i'm i'm opening a space where i am able to learn and change myself because i'm not who i want to be in the world and i think those those substances amplify it like extremely right now where we're at is like, man, I, I would really like for people to learn about these spaces that are inherent to human uh, culture, like for all time, right? If you go back and look at indigenous cultures, you'll find 14% of them used some sort of psychotropic medicine, whatever you want to call it, some substance that put them into states. 100% of them use drumming.
0: So this is awesome. I love that you're going here with this and you know, uh, this is something I sh- speak to constantly. So uh, I got to give a little bit of a backstory to get mm-hmm. to where I'm going in terms of where I know you're going with this. I grew up as an only child, mm-hmm. right? My We all talk about like, what was your core childhood when My was loneliness, right? So mm-hmm. I was profoundly lonely as an only child, but I never had context. So I never knew I was lonely until I was in my late 20s. I was on a heavy dose of psilocybin. I was around a community of friends that I was responsible for really bringing together around the work that I was doing. And I had like this really emotional breakdown in this moment and it was like beautiful. It wasn't like, oh, I'm like sad or hurt. It was like, wow, I finally understand what it was I was missing my entire childhood, Mm -hmm. right? I was missing a feeling of real connection with other people and as a result, my entire life trajectory was one of bringing people together around something and that Mm -hmm. something for me was music. Mm -hmm. And so my entire career path was basically me taking the thing that hurt me and simultaneously was like a process of healing me, Mm -hmm. right, subconsciously, and that became my path and my purpose so i'm 100 percent on board with where you're going with this like going back to music as one of these core things it's not just the music in and of itself right it's what we're able to share in Mm -hmm. you know you could like speak to like you know christian philosophy in terms of like whenever two or more together in my name there i am right Mm -hmm. like you know like these are we come together in unity and as we're in that space, we get to reflect, we get to like, look at each other, see ourselves in one another. We get to remember our common, like interests our common good our commonality. Right. And like drop the bullshit mm-hmm. that divides us essentially while we're, you know, communing around sound, music, mm-hmm. meaning message. And, you know, maybe that's the core of like, you know, full circle, whether it's entertainment or whether it's art or whether it's, you know, low vibrational or Mm -hmm. high vibrational. Right. And sometimes it's fun to play in those low vibrational spaces, but it's going to get old, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's, um, I don't, we haven't been taught to think that way, though, like, you know, just culturally, we've been indoctrinated to accept certain facts about the world and certain ideas like getting a job, educating yourself to point so you can make as much money as possible and consume as much as possible. And therefore, that's the economy. Man, you're really supercharging the economy by buying that house and that car and having those kids and then continue and like just working as much as you can for this other industry that's supporting another industry, and it all becomes kind of a machine, like an unbelievable machine. And I think the real danger is taking these things that actually are subverting that machine and turning it into a machine itself. That that's like the weaponization of our one chance to realize human nature. Um that that is sustainable like human nature isn't sustainable within our modern idea our modern concept of civilization right for every civilization that has been great everyone talk, the the mongols the romans the uh, the ottomans where wherever there's a civilization that has fallen there's a desert and that's because they suck the resources out of everything and what these, if you look at indigenous practice as in like first peoples that survived millennia, we're talking like 60,000 years civilizations like indigenous cultures have survived. Uh, when you look at their practices of sustainability, music is always one of them. It, that, that is really bizarre to me. And I like speak to drumming as medicine because it can tune your brain so you can heal yourself. Like the idea... But when you take, you know, it's common, you like, go drink grandmother and like sit in the circle and wear all white. All that stuff's great. Fucking do it. Like have at it. It's fine. Like light the candles, do the, do the, do the prayers, do the whole thing. Um, speak in Spanish. Doesn't really matter. Say all of the things that make you feel like you connect to the spiritual realm. But in the end, somebody will eventually say you are the medicine, right? And this, this feature is so outside Western culture, they're like, oh my God, it's like a profound thing that happens. But that has nothing to do with drugs, right? In fact, how we think of drugs is something outside of us, something that is outside of us that fixes us. But the idea is that we fix us, no matter what the disease is, right? It could be a modern one. It could be, um, I, I could have Uh, something that, let's say I have an infection, right? I have like a bacterial infection. There's a known antibiotic that I can take and that will, that will cure me, but it's actually not curing me. It's giving me space in order for my body to cure itself, right? It's fighting off the thing that is hurting me so that my immune system can kick in and take care of itself. That's how any of this stuff works. You break an arm, they cast the arm. They didn't fix your arm. They they put it into a place so you can't do further damage. They gave you space so that your body could heal all of the things about it.
0: So that's that's a parallel that to the opioid crisis, yeah. right? And I would say that there's a there's a similarity that I can see between the way in which opioids have been abused by people, because again, you're treating the acute pain essentially mm-hmm. that allows your body the time and space to be able to heal yep. now that's parallel that to people who continue to go back to ayahuasca again and again and again yep. and again essentially as an escape yes in some ways from the shit experience that they're having in life for one reason or another
1: again it's human behavior that is is taught to look outside of themselves and that's where I, like the the danger i'm talking about is that exact thing right to treat um this traditional medicine as allopathic medicine like to Mm. to just like switch one for the other without an understanding that like there needs to be a cultural shift an educational shift where we start teaching people about inexplicable things that we can't describe to them in the world like this this is like storylines and knowledge passed on from one family to the next these ideas maybe they're wrong they might be wrong right that there's no way to prove it, They're just like there's no way to prove or disprove any kind of esoteric belief, um, even though people try to, but this idea um, that things come around, and things are in cycles, and in order to um, live within the means and the land, you have to pay attention to these patterns, right, these patterns will keep happening, and because people have taught you, you need to teach other people, and that, that cycle, that that very basic idea that there is no answer that there is just a a way of like understanding how the world works and how you work within it that that is what a first of all the like total benefit of using substances has given me right but i don't need the substances anymore like i really don't it's it's about taking that knowledge and not coming to it because I I agree with you like the trap is being like oh this is the thing that changed me I still need to use that thing over and over again
0: well it's a weird I said this in one of the recent integration circles and I can speak Mm -hmm. to that Like, I love talking to you about that one but uh, (laughs) it's a weird thing to want to get good at right to want to get good at having agency in that space Mm -hmm. might actually be preventing a person from really gleaning what that medicine has to offer yeah like unless you're really ready and able to fall the fuck apart mm-hmm. and have kind of like a slightly mental break situation, mm-hmm. right you might not be getting what like like what's there yeah. all of a sudden like I remember like my first experience with aya, like having a challenging time. And mm-hmm. that was probably the most profound experience that I've had on I. But then I was like, okay, like I wanna navigate this. I wanna be able to like have more agency in the space, ask more questions. So like- you you're a
1: good problem solver. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so I learned to sit up, like have straight posture, yeah. mm-hmm. be present with mm-hmm. it. Like take a full cup, breathe, mm-hmm. hydrate, come back to your intention, mm-hmm. you know? And like, I wasn't purging. I wasn't having challenging times. Like, was it uncomfortable? Did I see some dark, stuff yeah of course Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like the same like breakdown sort of like i'm cringing i'll never forget this like the, the biggest takeaway i had and like this this will probably forever be like the the core takeaway was i remember purging And I remember, like, I actually made it to the bathroom, The Purge, Mm -hmm. and I remember feeling in a moment, like, oh, like, I just ingested poison, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like I poisoned myself. And that was, like, my mind speaking, right? My body, like, my somatic experience responded to my mind in this ayahuasca trip, and it was, like, it's not the ayahuasca it's your stress yeah. like the what that's you feel what you yeah what you feel coursing through your veins right now is cortisol right and like <sighs> that's the poison man like it's not the ayah. so like maybe take a look at that right yeah, yeah. but it required having that purge to have that experience um oh, yeah. and so like it's like okay well like is there really value or benefit in being able to have so much agency in that space where you can keep it together and sing a song like I don't know man like it feels fucking great right to be able to do that Mm -hmm. but i think that it's somewhat limiting in and of itself and again like you were saying earlier i don't have the answers i don't know another thing going back to the escapism Mm. and i don't think this is so much about escapism as it is um you know like not having community like real community Mm. the integration circles the next morning Right, like to me, what I see in those situations is a lot of people that have all of this bottled stuff, yeah. this bottled up stuff that they wanna express, that they wanna share, they wanna be seen in, mm-hmm. right? And like an ayahuasca ceremony inherently is a very internal experience. So it's like you're doing your own thing mm-hmm. in those moments. But then, when you have the opportunity to share, to be seen, to listen to others, right? It's just like I don't know. That's like a just a damn, just it's like another, busting. It's another purge. It is yeah, right. In most and uh, perangi had a really great line that has stuck with me. It says uh, brevity is compassion. as it it relates to uh (laughs) as it relates to those moments um oh yeah you know like because again like that's still your experience but if you're working to cultivate community outside of these spaces Mm -hmm. right like maybe that's one of the most you know medicinal things that you can do for yourself and it doesn't require any of this right no and again the gift of music in these collective settings the downside on the other side of that is that the music industry, going back to what I do, mm-hmm. is fueled by alcohol sales. Yeah. Which, again, I'm not going to judge it in a lot of ways. Like, I think that, you know, we've been coming together in celebration and around music yeah. and entertainment with intoxicants for all of time, yeah. you know? I mean, that's what originally Symposia was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so, I mean... But that being said, it's definitely given the fact that it's the most legal substance that's available to us. That's an intoxicant. Yeah. It's the most abused, without question.
1: Well, that, yeah, I have. This is this is. I mean, again, I'm not saying that these things should remain illegal, especially like federally scheduled drugs, because they they absolutely have medicinal qualities, which disqualifies them from a Schedule One license anyway, or a Schedule One classification. Anyway, they, what? I, but I have a really hard time talking about the legalization of them because they're in this weird realm, just like alcohol is in this weird realm. We know what happens when you get rid of it, right? But there's a huge difference between our historical use of alcohol and our use of it now. Like there's this really great song. Um, why can't I can't think of the name of it? Um, God, I'm gonna... Uh, it's an Irish drinking song that's about giving up drinking. It's the most Irish fucking thing. They it's a it's a it's like the most well-known Irish drinking song about not drinking. And that that's like that they've known about the problems of drinking for so long, but they go hand in hand with certain subcultures, mostly poverty. Right? Like and it bleeds into alcohol can affect every, every kind of status of human being, but really it follows poverty. And we talked about this actually on the last podcast because essentially drinking sales uh, p- pub community has dropped off in the UK. Mm. And they assign it because in 2009, 2010, finally the ratio that they thought was important to keep for the, the cost of a, a single beer, which is the, uh, is closely related to the hour, average hourly wage that switched and now you have all these like highline beers and like it became too expensive to come to a pub and drink so the community dissolved actually it has nothing to do with drinking it has to do with bringing people together So I want to jump in on this, Rising
0: Appalachia, Um, love Leah and Chloe and Biko and Aruna and David to Death, like they're, Duncan, they're just such an incredible band Mm -hmm. and I can go into depth about what they're doing in terms of like really championing, returning to your roots and finding your origins, how my story of like finding like my Mm Tartar music through you and our connection, like I shared that with them and they're like, that's incredible, but... That's a whole different tangent, but I will never forget Leah sharing with me after doing a tour through Ireland. And there's a promoter that hosted them, and they like they will go into the homes of the people that like host them. They get really close to the communities. And there's this old Irish promoter, and she like pulls up, literally she pulls up like this uh, tumbler and fills it with a like a shot of Jameson. She's holding it and she's like talking to me because I've had like a storied past with alcohol. Like I have a very mixed relationship with it. And she's like swirling and she's like. Adam, it's not about the drink. It's about the conversations that happen when you have the glass in your hand. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's it. Mm-hmm. Like that's entirely it. It's not, you don't want the hangover. Yeah. You don't want to deal with like the dark side of it. has nothing to do
1: with the actual substance.
0: At all, yeah. but it's about bringing people together. And yeah. so that line always stayed with me. And it's understandable the associations that occur as a result of this culture that we romanticize
1: heavily. This is something that I said to like uh, my friends is like there's just no socially acceptable way to gather and have intimate conversations. This is a totally different, um, you know, it's a different aspect to mass culture. In any kind of civilization that had less than 150 people, this would be the rule of thumb every day is spent having intimate conversations that's where gossip comes from right except it keeps you choose people online yeah well go- <laughs> and also yeah you're like hey what's that person up to you're not you're not like talking shit about them you want to know because they're part of your community and we realize this too we like doing you know mushroom ceremonies or something like that you're like why like oh it's because we know. like why why do we want to do this instead of just being, "Hey, do you want to come over and just chat at my house for 5 hours?" No, you need an excuse. Do you want to go get a beer? Do you want to do dinner? Do you need coffee? You need a substance to go with the fact that we just need to sit down and communicate and have a very in-depth no 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 hold bar conversation that really lets out what we need to get out. And we just do it around substances. Right? My substance that I do it with is, is different than somebody else's substance, but we're just talking about appropriately using the substance to make us better humans. And the second the substance gets in the way and it becomes about the substance, you have abuse of what is actually going on. Whether it's a non-addictive form like ayahuasca, which still gets abused right by the people that serve it to too many people who are unqualified or or mismarked as somebody that is appropriate for or the people who take it too much as a way to reenact their trauma cycles or whatever they want. I mean there's all sorts of like toxic behavior that goes with anything that a human can do. Um man, I real I like I don't drink anymore cuz it wasn't for me, but I have nothing against it. I just never had a There was good conversations that happened, but it it lowers me to a point where I'm not as useful, right? And the same thing with other substances. But how long did it take to get there? Like it took fucking years to realize, and years of like, you know, doing it too much or you know not using it for the right purpose and putting. And that's that's because there's no one to teach us. There's no person to teach us.
0: You know, I like Jordan Peterson's perspective on substance abuse a lot, Mm -hmm. right? Like we as a culture have like this fascination with like, adolescence, Mm -hmm. right? Like a lot of us just aren't growing up. And it's like we have less and less people having kids. I'm 38, I still don't have a child, right? Mm -hmm. It's something I definitely wanna do, but until you have something in your life that is clearly more important than yourself, you're not necessarily willing to fully take stock of your own bullshit, right? Because you can get away with it because you don't have the other responsibilities that are in the way. Um, I have had a lot of challenging experiences over the years managing my relationship with alcohol as a result of the industry that i'm in. Yeah. I don't think that if i was if i was in a different industry if i went into the medical industry or law or mm-hmm. whatever else it is like i don't think that that would be so prominent in my experience, but it's the way that people in my industry connect, going back to what we're saying. And I can promise you that that is the biggest thing that has been holding me back from taking further steps forward simultaneously. Because you can't function the next day or two after you have a profound hangover. Like you literally are not, at the same level of sharpness
1: dude that was our that was our experience in in the movie industry was like drinking is part of it right especially if you have you know english clientele or like something it's just they don't you know it's, and it's mentioned before it's like i ah, just get a drink so people trust you and you're like i i drink heavily when i was like 17 and then as soon as i was 21 i was kind of like i don't care like I, I just it was it didn't interest me at all uh, I never really did it after that, maybe here and there, but generally not until I worked in the movie industry. I was like 27, 28, and you know, people are like, well, you know, this is how we have conversations. You just order a drink. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't care because I'm not attracted to the thing, and then I would drink because it was part of it, and then you would drink because people come ask you to do it, and then before you know it, I'm drinking because it's a behavior that is just kind of subconscious. Oh, yeah, this is how I manage stress right I have a stressful job or come home I have a drink at the end of the day or I have a couple drinks or I have whatever and then you realize you're like fuck I don't like I am drinking not because I want to just because I'm around these people that it's a feature of their practice right which without any judgment is good or bad it's up to them
0: it's interesting that you call it a practice like I would say culture but practice I think is more appropriate because I think that one of the things I've taken away training with you here is that and I remember texting you about this mm-hmm. like I am a better human being, a more balanced, a more grounded after literally pushing myself to in 40 to 60 minute efforts with you. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and if I do that four or five times a week, mm-hmm. like you can't go out and get blitzed and then have a hangover the next day. I've done it. You've yeah. seen my, you've <laughs> seen the results as I throw up in a trash can, right? Like it's a bad mix. Right? Yeah. So it's like, I a... laugh
1: every time you come back from a uh, like a festival and you're like, Oh man, it was a wild weekend. It's like, Get the get the trash can ready.
0: At least I laugh at it. You know, like I see the own humor <laughs> in it. I don't know if that's healthy or not, but maybe. It's, it's that I've taken ownership of those decisions. Yeah. And I think that that is one of the things that will set certain people in the industry apart. And maybe it's the same with the mu- movie mm-hmm. industry. Is that as long as you like are consciously signing up for it and you're yeah. saying like, okay, I know what I'm getting myself into. Yes. The, like the you know, the the cases of people that are just kind of like abandoned on the side of the road or the people that didn't realize what they were getting themselves into. They get yeah. caught up in like that party that don't necessarily have like a foundation and awareness of what is really going on at large in the industry. Yeah, Like you have to be able to be cognizant of it to know when to like put yourself to bed. Be like, okay guys, yeah. I'm out. The Irish exit is an amazing tactic, right? Mm-hmm. Like didn't even say goodbye all of a sudden like people are like where'd you go i'm like "Oh, i'm in bed like i hope you have a great night get home safe (laughs) yeah yeah yeah
1: they're going around yeah that there is i mean there's ways to mitigate it for sure towards the end of my like involvement in in that in industry and and a little bit after because i was like doing some other things for some like corporations that act the exact same way drinking culture party on the weekends kind of deal after a hard work of traveling and you know whatever um man, it was a duck out kind of deal. It was like, I remember specifically we talked to a bartender, me and Aaron were like, man, we really want to go run in the morning, but we got to be to this like company thing. And we were like, um, let's talk to the bartender. And it's like, Hey, I'm going to order shots. Will you just slide me water shots because we want to get out early like we, we just like they want to have a good time I want to be part of the good time so they would just keep bringing us shots with water and we'd like by 11 p.m they were so blackout drunk that we just walked out and then we went and got up and ran a trail in the morning had like like it was just like let's just do this more often let's like let's like just not do that part and then they would wake up at three four in the afternoon and be like oh man and you're like yeah it was a rough one like how long you've been up? I just got up and no one knew like, you don't like, I'm not doing it to like rub it in their face to be Jocko or whatever the fuck. And like, wake up early to like train hard. It was just like, no, I, I enjoy moving around and I can't move around if I'm hung over. I feel terrible. I don't want to feel terrible. I want to feel good.
0: Yeah. Hangovers are the worst. And I think that, you know, like club owners, mm-hmm. uh, pull that trick a lot. It's why a lot of club owners will, uh, do tequila shots because It's yes, clear. Yeah, it's clear. It's an easy way to get away with that. Yeah. Um, But yeah, man, I mean, it's sad that we have to do that, you know, like if you really get to the core of it, like if like we are posturing in a way to be able to allow other people to not feel uncomfortable by a choice that we're making in that moment to be sober. And I've had like on and off periods. I've taken like a year off of alcohol in its entirety. And Mm -hmm. then I've gone back to binge drinking essentially occasionally to then like leveling it out. You know, (laughs) I've never been one to like, I don't wanna have like, I don't want to be the guy that has a beer at the bar every single day. No. Because one of the things that I have learned in my own experience is that as soon as I have one drink, like, no more work is really getting done, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe if you're all up in it in terms of, like, a heavy four-day push of festival, like, sure. you know, I've definitely been, I've definitely engaged and, like, drank through those moments yeah. like a production pirate, right? That's, like, a yeah. cliche of the industry. But, like, I don't I don't understand like the the beer and yoga vibe or you know like yeah no like,
1: that those something yeah movement and certain things just don't go hand in hand no. I, and I've also like taken from you know a different substance I've been a fourth round person and been like cool I'm not going to sleep and I'm going to pay for this big time mm-hmm. so th- there is There's aspects of pushing things past a boundary where you know it's going into a realm that you're going to have to recover from. And that could still be useful. But if it is the... I I think if it's just the... If it's the knee-jerk reaction or the knee-jerk behavior, like, oh, we're drinking tonight. And then you drink until blackout or you drink until excess. It's it's not even calling it alcoholism or abuse. It's just inattention to what you actually want and a disassociation towards how you want to be.
0: Lack of discipline. Yeah, going back to the Jordan Peterson sort of perspectives, yeah. you know, I really resonate with him just because he comes at it from like this, you know, father figure that we never really had. Yeah, <laughs> like I, had their shit together and was like conscious enough to call you out on it and like a way that's kind of just like, hey, here's the facts.
1: I think you know, I I liked a lot of his stuff in 2017, 2018, and then he lost me somewhere along the road. Mostly his voice, like the nasally kind of <laughs> that, and all like specifically, he started speaking about warrior culture. And I was like, "Man, that is not you, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> you're like you're an academic. Like, just own it. Like, speak about it." But he's talking about the importance of it and violence, and you're like, "That guy has never fucking experienced any violence in his life." Um, and now I see it as like he's really taken a shift downwards lately. I really like his substance abuse is fucking Twitter, right? Like his substance abuse is he's he's a perfect example of that. Uh, he actually
0: had an opioid addiction recently he came out about this and oh no like, kidding uh, yeah he got prescribed for something and no shit. He ended up addicted to it yeah. i
1: didn't hear that i i, I mean I, I wouldn't be surprised because his behavior became kind of erratic and he like uh, what he you know he fostered in 2018 he made this comment that was very profound about like being very aware of how you act on social media because it's so easy to get pulled into right and and to not be the person that you a calm responsive person you become a reactive irritated frustrated person and what's weird about it is like i think that's that's what he sounds like he sounds like he became what he was worried about uh, and maybe it has some maybe it has some opiate addiction problems but
0: it'd be important to check in on that yeah. i do know that it was a conversation i was having with a friend of mine that's like another fan of his yeah. and he shared that i was like you're right like i i mean he seemed kind of like broken down for a while there yeah. so
1: it's interesting but it doesn't it doesn't take away from good things that he had to say Um, it, I think that's another mistake that we make in our culture. Like somebody makes a slip or they change to a direction, put it in music, uh, terms. There's bands that like, you know, I grew up loving AFI, like punk rock, East Bay, hardcore kind of deal. I just, they were like one of the first bands I saw when I was younger live and I just loved their energy. They just put on such a good show. And I really had this like affinity for misfits and like kind of goth punk rock kind of shit and they changed completely like I first saw them they played here they opened for like they were like a first opener for like uh I think sick of it all or something like they were like a nobody band and then as they grew they become really popular and then their style changed and I really liked their style it became more hardcore more goth and then they became so whiny and emo but I'd always like appreciated the change I just quit listening right I just like Shifted. I was like, "Oh, it's cool. They're going a direction." I didn't get mad at them. I did, I just didn't. It wasn't what I was into anymore. And I think they came back around and played a couple new things. I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." Still not into it. Uh, and then Davey havoc started another band uh, that I fucking love. Black Audio mm. it was amazing. It was like went back to this like kind of synth '80s dark goth music, and it was like that oh yeah he's still you know he's still into the same stuff and i'll listen to that it's an appreciation of somebody that did something that you like and to just hold that moment as something you liked and if, when that person evolves into a place that you're not appreciating anymore you just let them go right you just like let them do their thing and they might come back around we have this cultural problem of like if they're if they were our hero once they need to always be our hero and that's not the nature of anything everything dissolves yeah that's
0: not healthy And I agree with that. I definitely have influencers that I've followed, Hmm. um, you know, and I use that word pretty carefully, but (laughs) yeah, where, uh, where, you know, I've grown or they shifted, you know, Mm -hmm. their topic of focus. Yeah. And uh, as a result, you know, I just wasn't as interested anymore in what they were doing. Like all of a sudden, like there's a resonance that you share with certain thought leaders, Mm -hmm. certain musicians, certain artists where you feel scene where you feel understood where you feel like you understand them and then that creates like a bond you become a fan yeah. right and you know that shifts it's it's for a sure.
1: it is a resonance and th- this is the kind of funny it, well if if you come back to musical theory and frequency what you're talking about is aligning in a certain rhythm where harmony and melody can kind of coexist right that these rhythms come together and, and that's they speak to something that you attach to and you ride that like and and that's the power of words that's the power of music is like you feel it and you just want to ride that same rhythm that's what is so basic and also fundamentally so complex to understand about you hear a song and you just go oh my god what is that like what is that what is that sound that I need to be into? Because it matches what I want to feel.
0: That goes right on the Moon Zone playlist. Whenever I hear it, <laughs>
1: <laughs> perfect. Yeah, I get to ride that and something else. Man, I really enjoy having you. on. We're gonna have to have you back when uh, Mark is here because I all know he it, would man. get such a kick out of it. But I appreciate you taking the time. I've wanted to set you down for a while. I just like I knew you're busy with all of this stuff. I just your your appreciation of culture and music and how you intertwine them. I always get such a kick out of like listening to you. Uh, it's like, you know, there's these people, these, these people that, um, they're just totally different, but there's some similarities where you're like, I like how they're doing what they're doing and I have no idea how they do it, but I, I just, uh, yeah, I appreciate you coming on and, and, and how you're living. So
0: Thank you for coming on. Yeah, man. Thank you. I appreciate having the opportunity to like look at the philosophy of the things behind we do, and mm-hmm. I think that that's what identifies or what characterizes the work that you do here with Mark and Aaron and everybody else in nonprofit. It's nice. not about like the expression in and of itself; mm-hmm. it's the meaning underneath it, you know. And so to be able to have long form conversations that give us the opportunity to like hash all of that out. You can't get into Mm -hmm. the core of some of the things that we just discussed or anything, unless you like create the space (laughs) to like find those little nuggets for sure. You know,
1: and that's kind of, that I guess that is our practice, you know, that we're, (laughs) it's just like, let's get down, let's get to the good stuff. Uh, and and you definitely have, you, you hang in there like, like the best of them. Uh, do you, um, if people wanted to know more about East Forest or some of the promotions that you do, if this like, you know, kicked off, if somebody has no idea who East Forest is, uh, that's weird. But like if, if they if they heard this and they want to find the best place to find you, where would they do
0: it? I mean, I'm most active right now on Instagram, Mm -hmm. even though I'm sure that that's gonna change because all social media platforms do, but Adam St. Simons is my handle. My company is Preamp. Um, It's pretty mellow just because in the bigger picture, my job is to platform other artists, Mm -hmm. other companies. Um, Live Night Events is the local company that I work with here in Salt Lake City. Um, Reggae Rise Up, obviously a really uh, well-known festival brand within Mm -hmm. that genre um but yeah man i am i mean i'm sure that i'll be active with a lot more artists Mm -hmm. as i move forward and that hopefully preamp becomes more of a central hub for what i'm doing but for now my personal is the best way to like check me out and you know reach out awesome man yeah man thank you thank you very much appreciate you